Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 15. This conversation is today with the legendary, artistic, creative, technical, genius juggler, and I don't use that word lightly, genius juggler, Jay Gilligan. Before we get to that, let's thank our sponsor, the International Jugglers Association. Information about the IJA can be found at juggle.org. Join the greatest group of jugglers in the world. Join the IJA today. Now, this conversation is taking place in Seattle. I worked with Jay at Moisture Festival, which is a month-long vaudeville festival that takes part in Seattle. So, we're talking a little bit about what happens backstage, then we get into a lot of topics covering juggling and jugglers. So drop everything, sit back, enjoy this conversation with Jay Gilligan. My, my podcast is called Drop Everything. And the first topic we have on our list is dropping. You have a certain philosophy about dropping and uh, how you feel about that. So let's get to our topic number one, <laughs> dropping. Sure. So what do you think dropping is? Do you have a thought about that as a, as a definition? I think dropping and juggling is like falling and ice skating. Mm-hmm. That it's you want to avoid it at all costs. Because I believe a lot of people don't know a good juggler from a bad juggler but they know a bad juggler drops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when I create my routines, I'm always striving when I do, when I do long shows, like 45 minutes, I, I want one drop at the most in an entire show. Yeah. So I, that's my belief about dropping. I mean, with juggling, I do agree that juggling, I think our, our job description is to catch things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then we're kind of stuck with this literal meaning of the word catch and drop. Drop usually means to fall, and we think to the floor. Right, to make a mistake. From our hand. Yeah. <laughs> but th- So we generally think that dropping is are things literally falling down. But in fact, Luke Wilson, who was a good friend of ours, mm-hmm. he always said a drop is a failure of intention. And I think of that I a see. lot. So it has nothing to do with things literally falling in the direction <laughs> of the ground. So you could intend to drop, therefore it would take away the whole meaning of dropping. Sure. As opposed to a failure of intention, I tried to catch it and I missed. Yeah. No, my intention was to drop. I mean, if you take the the current style of juggling, a lot of the new cutting edge stuff, you have this manipulation uh, techniques that aren't necessarily throwing and catching. Mm-hmm. So in the traditional sense of the word drop, you can't really drop that stuff. But I think with Luke's definition, you can certainly mess it up. Well, if you're doing poise spinning, and there's even a break in the flow exactly. of the pattern, sure. it would be considered a drop by the definition of a failure of intention. Exactly, yeah. And in terms of dropping on purpose, then again, it goes back to what is the definition of not what is a drop maybe, but what is a success? Or what is the, how do you succeed in your juggling? What is that definition? Do you, do you think about that? Well, I think definitely think about the difference between like dropping, like when I'm rehearsing. Because mm. even when I rehearse, I don't like to rehearse failure. Yeah. I see jugglers who are starting out, and sometimes I see them like they're on their knees or over a bed, as if they're teaching themselves that dropping is okay. Hmm. And when I started out, one for one reason, an exercise I had, I always used uh, the crossballs mm-hmm. before we had silicon. And sometimes I would purposely juggle like on a hill. Okay. Or in the street. Wow. So that if, if I dropped, I would have to, it was really a big pain in the ass. I'd have to chase the balls. That's awesome. So I really sort of taught myself that dropping wasn't okay wow. ever. I have a story about that that reminds me I used to work with in Jerome Tomas company. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a show with him, and one, we would always practice in the morning individually, and he would be in the corner with his silicone balls, and I would have my Fergie bags. <laughs> if you right, right. Fergie, sure, sure, sure. Fergie bags. 
And one day he kind of came over to my corner and he said, oh, what are these? And he picks up my beanbag. And I said, oh, it's a juggling ball. And he says, yeah, but it doesn't bounce. It doesn't roll. I said, yeah. So then when I drop, I can just bend down and pick <laughs> it up. I don't have to go chase it. And he kind of had an epiphany, which was kind of a little bit, I don't, I don't want to say sad, right, but right. after how many years had he been juggling silicone sure, sure. balls? And he hadn't really thought about that, whereas you consciously maybe put yourself on the hill with the lacrosse ball. But then there were times like I, when I juggled seven balls initially, and even when I competed in the IGA numbers competition, the couple of times I did in my early juggling, yeah. I used lacrosse balls. Wow. And obviously... Hardcore, dude. I was hardcore. Right I was hardcore. Yeah, respect. But I also believe that like when you're building up a technical trick, that some people, instead of like using the technique of like a piano piece where you kind of go from what you can accomplish and slowly adding, hmm. they go, I'm going to go to failure. I'm going to go to failure. Hmm. And they're just drop. As opposed to like, let's say you're learning crotch throws or Albert throws. Yeah. I would go one from the right. Yeah. One from the right. Right. And try to build up in a way I could do it where I was building up without dropping. Mm -hmm. Is that, how do you, when you practice, what places dropping have in your, in your practice regime? Well, it reminds me, I had a student in Sweden at the circus school in Stockholm where I teach, and she was trying to learn this trick with three clubs where you're doing double spins in front, and then uh, when your hand wasn't doing the double spin in front, it would be doing a single flip behind your back, mm -hmm. and you do these kind of blind catches. Yeah. And so she couldn't do the trick, and she just picked up the clubs, and every day I saw her in the hall, she would throw the clubs in front of her fine, and then she would throw the club behind for the blind catch and drop it. Right. Every time. Right. And I suggested one day, I said, why don't you turn your head to look? Yeah, master the back Because throw. you have time. You know, the double spin's quite lofty, and you have time for now. You could look and see where that catch is until you understand it. Yeah. And then you could, you could learn the trick, maybe faster. And she said, no, but the point of the trick is that you don't look at that catch. And I said, the catch. You don't look at that catch. And right now you're dropping. <laughs> right, 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 right. So right. Let's, let's build it up in a realistic way. And yeah. I also had a few students who wanted to learn, for example, seven balls really low. They wanted to do seven balls maybe at head height. Right, right. And that was their thing. But they couldn't do seven balls. So then they would just kind of struggle and try to get this really tight, low pattern from nothing. So right. I think there is a bit of a give and take that maybe you would want to learn, yeah, the pattern at a more realistic hand speed height mm -hmm. and then eventually lower it down, lower it down or extend it up or make it wider. But yeah, you should have some sort of base, but it is a give and take. I, I understand your point that you don't want to start practicing mistakes and, and just thinking, well, I can drop everything except on this podcast. Exactly. Because of the name <laughs> of drop everything. I also see sometimes when people practice, like when I start my practice, I like to warm up like with the hat mm. or with some cane twirling. Mm. And I see some guys or, or girls just grab like, I'm going to start with five clubs. Yeah. In no other activity <laughs> yeah. would you basically go, I'm going to start with my most difficult thing before I'm even warmed up. But it's the same thing for, my, for when I'm performing. I try to structure my performances so that I naturally warm up during the, during the time on stage. Mm -hmm. Then eventually the, the technique kind of flows in my physical you know, being prepared to physically do it. Last night we were in a show together yeah. and there was a really talented contortionist, but she started off her act being inside a big, uh, well, small relatively box. small box. Right, right. A human size that a, a small person could squeeze into. a 17-year-old could yeah. possibly squeeze in if they right. could bend like Gumby, yes. And then they carried this box on stage and you weren't supposed to know she was in there and then there was a problem with some of the technical music cues or whatnot. And I'm thinking, here's a person who's going to get out and do very demanding physical activity mm -hmm. who can't even move for the first 
five to seven to ten minutes before they go on stage. It's that's a hard position to put yourself in. It's like you would start off your act with seven clubs. Yes. Without having any sort of, you're not, you're not used to the lights, you're not used to the rhythm or the audience or where's the stage. And, and like the show last night, I wouldn't call it rehearsal heavy. <laughs> There's not like a long time. And I was talking about yeah. this with uh, the last podcast with Mark Faye. And we both had this same idea. Is you come out, you do something you have in your bag. So you can get comfortable in the lights, comfortable yeah. in the setting. Because I see some guys, they come out and they're like, boom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like me and Barry, when we first started... Uh, we got some advice from a pretty famous juggler, Dick Franco, no slam on him, but his advice was come out, establish yourself as jugglers first, hmm. then show that you're comedians, because hmm. that's the way he approached it. And so we used to come out and do like a two-minute club juggling routine to music. Okay. And then, you know, our philosophy we learned was, no, we're juggl- we're comedians first, hmm. so we want to establish, so, we, so subsequently after like two years, we learned that... No, we're, we're comedians first who juggle. I see, yeah. But sure. there was definitely one night we were opening for, his nickname was El Puma. He was some Mexican, uh, <laughs> I don't remember his name, like Jose Rodriguez or something. At so if I met him, I would say, hey, hello, Mr. Puma. Uh, Mr. Yeah, Mr. yeah, Puma. like Dalai Lama. Hello, Mr. Lama. Hello, Mr. Lama. He was Mr. Puma. Okay. <laughs> I guess he was kind of a cut-rate uh, Julio Iglesias type. Okay, Mr. So Iglesias. we're opening at the Universal Amphitheater, and so we come out, we're going to do our, our club juggling opener, and literally, it was like a jumbo jet. Like, like the lights were so yeah. strong. Yeah. And so here we are, just like fumbling through this opening two minutes, dropping. Yeah. Then it just sets us set us such a low bar that we had to overcome. Yeah, yeah. So for us, it was more important to establish ourselves as comedians first. Right. Who then are jugglers. So I think it's important to see who you are and how, how you want to establish yourself initially on stage. I guess for me, what I like to do is I, I, I use a little bit different terminology and I say I come on stage and we should kind of make friends with the audience first. I want the audience to be my friend. I don't know, that doesn't necessarily mean they, when we talk about, when we talk about performing, there are words like beauty and, oh, it's very beautiful. We have these classical definitions mm-hmm. of words, but I mean, beauty has a huge range of meaning between every individual on the planet. Sure. So when I say friends, again, that has a broad range of meaning. Generally, it means I guess they like me or more to the point, they just want to see what I'm going to do. Like they're rooting for you. Sure. Or yeah. they're just curious. I don't mean maybe they even want me to fail. I don't know. But they want to see what's going to happen next. That's kind of my goal when I come on stage. And then once I have them, and again, I say on my side, which generally has a positive connotation, mm-hmm. then I can kind of do whatever I feel like I want to, where I can take them where I want to go. Yeah, I use the word connection a lot when okay. I coach. Like even when you're juggling to music, you never want to lose the connection with the audience. If it's all internal, hmm. if you're never expressing anything through the juggling, like get ready to watch this or, or this trick coming up is difficult, yeah. then you're never <laughs> expressing anything other than concentrating on the skills. You're not making that connection. Certainly it's all context and it's all... Again, we, we're all kind of in the same, we're, we're in the same society. Sure. And we have these same expectations from the audience and as a performer that we've grown up with. And they're, they're from hundreds of years, thousands of years old traditions of why things have evolved like this. And a lot of performing is about politics and money and, and art is not devoid of money. Sure, sure. <laughs> and, commercial and, aspect uh, to it. Yeah. So when people come to a theater, they expect to see a certain thing. And for example, if an audience comes to see modern dance... And the modern dance is a one hour long piece and there's five performers and they never once make eye contact with the audience. You never have that audience leaving the theater saying, well, it was amazing choreography, but they never looked at me. They just don't care. They didn't connect. 
Because that's not in that world. Right, right, right. And it kind of bugs me a little bit that we are kind of boxed in sometimes. So, for example, if you talk about connection, and I totally agree with you, but there's many different ways to connect. Sure. And eye contact is a literal connection. That's mm-hmm. a traditional way to connect with an audience. And so I think you can express things, albeit in different ways, but you have to play with these expectations that audiences have when they see a variety show or uh, maybe a contemporary dance show. Can you imagine if you did an hour show with your juggling and you never once made eye contact with the audience, you would never probably work again, at least in the markets we have right now. So that's one thing I notice a lot is that other art forms have different freedoms. And for sure, there's also the bad, the the constraints in modern sure. dance as well, or classical music or whatever you want to say. It's the context. Yeah, the context is really... Like we've had performers come to the IJA, like we had the Peapod jugglers, mm-hmm. and I think... It wasn't their crowd. Yep. People weren't there. They didn't understand yeah. how they were presenting their juggling. Right. They're like, they're not giving us what we want. Hmm. And I, even before they came, I said, we're Americans. I know you want to convey sort of a, a message, but we need a lot of sugar with our medicine. <laughs> That's exactly the terms I use. <laughs> like, I really am a big believer in this new style of juggling, the, this pushing the boundaries. But sometimes I feel it's inaccessible mm-hmm. to sort of the more straight IJ audiences. Hmm. So give them the technique, give them the things they understand, hmm. but also bring this new conceptual edge. Do you ever have to deal with in your performing then this idea that you want to not challenge the audience, but if, if they would just stick with you for a couple of those small steps that they're maybe a little bit uncomfortable with, that they could get to a a really big surprising amazing place if they would just stick with you for a little bit longer you never deal with that so much I'm really big on relatability like okay. I like to come out and do a couple of topical jokes like when we do a corporate event we always like to start with some customized material mm-hmm. that kind of shows that we relate to them we relate to the situation where we find ourselves and I've always considered myself a very commercial artist mm-hmm. that I always say that there's two circles. Like there's a circle that I want to do. Mm-hmm. There's a circle that the audience wants to see me do. Yeah. And where I live is where those two circles overlap. Like I don't want to do anything that I don't want to do that the audience wants to see me do. Hmm. And I don't want to do anything that they want me to do that I don't want to do. Like I don't want to hack it up. <laughs> but there's enough stuff that I want to do that people seem interested in watching hmm. that satisfies my both artistic and my commercial sensibilities. Okay. So that's how I approach it. Yeah, I always think that uh, maybe it's the same thing for me a little bit. I always think I try to meet them halfway. I go into a situation and I say, this is what the audience expects, this is what the venue expects, this is what the market expects, this is what the culture (laughs) expects. And then on the other side of that, there's all the stuff that I want to do. So my challenge is to show them, how can I show the audience what I want to show them? Don't take that as in a wrong way. It's not that what I want to show them is completely opposite of what they want to see but the challenge is you go into you go into a situation and you say okay I want to juggle like this but I want them to see actually what I'm juggling I I want them to be awake so then maybe sure maybe you have to start off with a joke maybe you have to start off with a dance maybe you have to start off with a movie I don't know we did a good job last night I think because you had a sort of an esoteric approach to juggling but at the same time you kept relating to the audience you kept making that connection by giving them a part to play in the dialogue of the show. Like, I just finished this. Right. Now I'm going, <laughs> yeah. now I'm going here. Sure. There was a storyline, there was an arc. That's the, I mean, again, that's the context we're in. I know it's, it's Moisture Festival. It's a variety arts performing festival and in, in it's, in it's the type of stage, it's the format. 
You don't really have an hour to develop a whole journey. You have eight minutes to try to, to take the audience somewhere. So it's quite an immediate immediate response you need. Right. So you don't have the luxury of really pl- being ambiguous. And they're not there just to see you. <laughs> no, exactly. But they're not necessarily there to see juggling. Being a juggler, you don't have to be like, oh, we want to see what our definition of juggling is. We know he's a juggler. Mm-hmm. Therefore, he has to fulfill our definition of juggling because here the audience is at least some of them come every year yeah so when they see something that's different they appreciate oh <laughs> he's a juggler but he's a different kind of juggler I did the the shoebox tour in America for seven years and kind of the idea it became it came from a reaction I was performing in Germany at the chameleon theater actually where you know hockey started that mm-hmm. we were hockey performing with last night yeah and I was in chameleon theater for about a year and we were doing you know, 10 shows a week, and it got to the point where on a Saturday or Sunday, we'd do two shows a day, and I wouldn't know if it was the first show or the second show. I'd be on stage and I was just so exhausted, <laughs> and, you, right. and you just thought, wait a second, I'm a, I'm a factory worker in that sense, and that's, not, that's definitely not the job description of a performer. You're like a part of a machine, you're a cog in a wheel. I'm just a robot, and which again, I have nothing, I, I love robots. Sure, sure. But that's not my job description in that moment. <laughs> it's like being in Cirque du Soleil, where basically it's like, you fulfill this eight minute section. Yeah. We're not necessarily looking for you to experiment, we're not looking for you to bring new things. We want this product to be repeated but I think even if you want to try to make every show the best show of your life, if you're doing 10 shows a week, you're going to fail probably yeah. 10 times. <laughs> so it's really hard to keep that sort of focus and connection with the audience every single show. So I just remember thinking, I remember being on stage juggling, literally juggling, and I remember thinking to myself, is this the first, do I have to do another show after this? Or is this, this, is this is the second show? Am I done for today after this? <laughs> right, right, right. And then I thought, and then I had a moment on stage where I thought, well, that's not right. Or that's not how I would like to live my life. Sure. And, or I kind of thought that that wasn't the job description of being a performer. <laughs> I wouldn't say you were definitely present in that moment. Not, well, <laughs> I was completely present in, but that, in, that, in that thought. <laughs> exactly. No, so anyway, so I, that night I kind of went home and I said, okay, I want to perform for people. And part of it is, well, I said I want to perform for people who want to see me. And part of it was is because, you know, in Germany, they have these wonderful theaters that fill up with people, but they're also there to eat, to drink, to talk to their friends during the show, during the performance. And that's just the culture there. Right, that's right. fine. But I said, okay, I want, to, I want to perform for people who came to see me specifically, even if it's one person. And I also decided that then nothing else really mattered. The stage didn't matter, the curtains didn't matter, the lights didn't matter. It was that I was going to go and perform for somebody who wanted to see me. Also, I felt a little bit bad from running away from America (laughs) to go to Europe to perform, even though there's more opportunities there for the style of work that I do. I love America, and I I mean, I grew up here, I have so many great friends here, and it's it's so nice. So I wanted to come back to America and really do some juggling for my friends who might want to actually see what I gave of myself. Over those seven years, I really learned a big lesson in how to not compromise. Well, I did learn to compromise, but compromise always has a bad connotation. But I think compromise is the best thing. Sure. Because compromising is you're making, you're making your way through a situation together. Excuse me, together. You're succeeding together, basically. And I think compromise usually means that people think it means you have to give up some of your... Integrity? Or yeah, <laughs> exactly. But no, I think, I think basically I was going to meet these audiences in people's backyards, in people's garages, community centers, basketball, courts. <laughs> so we get back to context. Where, yeah, warehouses. And all of a sudden, here's these people are going to come see this show. It's a juggling a performance. 
who are they, what do they expect, what is their background, what other shows have they seen, and where am I, what venue am I in, and then finally, what do I want to give them? And those seven years of learning these little ways to have the audience follow me along and, and to be happy, to, to make them happy, I mean ultimately happy, I mean, maybe along the way to be happy, you have to cry a bit, you have to scream, you have to sure. have some human emotion. Right, right. But eventually, they're, they're happy that they went to the show. They're happy that they supported the performance. They're happy they had that experience with us on the tour. Like you say, and it was an experience where you really wanted to lead them through a particular journey. Not just, my only goal is to keep you satisfied, keep you enthralled throughout the entire piece. Well, and, and maybe in some way, but maybe not in the most obvious way, Yeah. right? I mean, there's an emotional journey. We would show up to venues and the number one question we... I, I should write an article about this for the easy, and I've had notes for years, but I, I haven't had time. But one of the, the biggest questions we had every single time we'd show up at a shoebox tour kind of venue, if you would call it that, a room or a backyard, yeah. is someone would say, okay, how long is the performance? And they'd say, oh, it's going to be about an hour long. We try to keep it about 50 minutes to an hour. And they said, okay, so how many microphones do you need? So, well, we don't need, no, we don't need microphones. And they said, oh, but aren't you going to talk? No, of course we're not going to talk. It's a juggling show. We're going to do juggling. Yeah, but you're going to juggle for an hour without anything else? <laughs> well, sure. But of course, what our definition of juggling was is really different than what their experience of the past of what juggling could be. The comedy juggling is I understand. Yeah. I understand the question. I don't mean to belittle these people. But for us, uh, especially because we usually had a lot of uh, international performers, some Japanese guys and some Swedish people <laughs> and Finnish people, we didn't really have a common language, literally. I mean, they didn't speak English. Right. So we weren't going to have microphones necessarily to, to take the audience on that journey. But it definitely spoke to me and, and made me realize right away, hey, this is what people expect. If you show up and you're going to do an hour performance and you say you do a juggling show, you need a microphone. Excuse me, you need a microphone because... That's the only way you could get through that situation. That's the only way they could imagine that would help, that would work. I'm not saying every show we did on Shoebox was genius. <laughs> I think they got better as we went over the seven right. years. In many small ways, I have to say, I think we did succeed um, at many of those performances that the audiences, at least the ones who came to me and thanked me to my face, that's all I know is that they were happy enough to sit there for an hour and watch us without us having a microphone, without us having some of the more traditional expected ways. I wish I could think of some concrete examples to tell you about how we related to the audience, but I think mostly it was that we just believed in what we were doing. Because a lot of times after the shoebox tour shows, we would have jugglers, I mean, of course, a lot of jugglers came to the show and originally that was the idea is that it would be kind of a, a show about juggling for jugglers and we would come and the local juggling club would watch us. And it turned out in the end, we had a lot more support from the general public than the juggling community, which was, which was awesome and unexpected because that's more sustainable. <laughs> but a lot of the jugglers would come up after the show and they would say, man, that show was incredible because the tricks were insane. I've never seen Wes Peden was juggling like that. I enjoyed it because I'm a juggler. They but could appreciate it. Because, and with a little wink in their eye as if they were the only ones in the audience who could appreciate it because the other people were just laymen. <laughs> Sure. Who, who didn't know this juggling trick was hard and therefore they, they were probably bored. And then they would say, or, or then the other response would be, they would be a juggler, maybe even a performing juggler in America. And they would come up after the show and they would say, hey, that show was amazing. The juggling was amazing. I was so inspired. But, but just so you know, that would never work here. You know, this was kind of a rare occasion. And it's like, well, we did it for seven years and right, right. we did it for all these audiences every year. 
I understand the point that there isn't a built-in market. Like you take it on a cruise ship and... It's the wrong... Yeah, it's yeah, not going to work. We kind of approach it <laughs> like when we started, it was sort of like LPM, like laughs per minute. Mm-hmm. So that you really needed to have this other structure. Like a lot of modern shows, if you look at modern juggling shows, if you actually broke down the amount of juggling they're doing, yeah. it would be like six minutes yeah. over the course of an hour. Sure. Because so much of it is built up with an audience volunteer or the comic build up to a, a stunt that could have taken 10 seconds. Hey man, it's the same in France, but with theatrics. So we play, yeah, replace comedy with, with some really terrible, bad amateur <laughs> right, right. theater. I mean, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a juggler in France who had a genius act, genius, with a, a rope, a long rope and a ball. I don't know if you saw this. And he did a six minute act as a graduation from his circus school. And it was seriously some crazy technique, really good choreography, really flowing. Then he got some art grants from, from the government. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it got expanded into a 20 minute work in progress. Well, it was 20 minutes long, right, but right. it was still six minutes spread out over 20 minutes. And I just saw the finished version last summer in Copenhagen, and it was an hour long. It was the same six minutes of juggling, but spread out literally over an hour with yeah. some just, with some... Sometimes they say the magic is in the eraser. <laughs> right. Or less is more. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to... I get, I get the idea of bulking it out. But if you say, if it's a good six minutes spread over an hour, yeah, better off having a good six minutes. Definitely minimalism. And, and, and minimalism doesn't mean devoid of anything. It means the least necessary. I like that, the least necessary. And yeah, this idea of what is necessary in performing, it's, for me, the most powerful thing. When you go on stage, you have to say to yourself okay, what is needed in this moment? What does the audience need to see? And what do I need to do to show them that? And what do I need to do to succeed here for myself as well as for them? So necessity, I think, is the biggest, uh, yeah, the biggest important concept. <laughs> now, the funny thing is we're only on now subject number two. Maybe we covered a couple of... Wait, wait, I wait, think we covered the we Shubak, We covered the Shubak aesthetic because we were talking about... A little bit. How, like, when I... <laughs> when we had a show one time with Team RDL. Yeah. And we butted ahead a little, butted ahead a little bit because I was directing it and I brought you guys in. And you wanted to sort of continue that Shubak, Shubak's aesthetic. Yeah, can, yeah. In this big theater environment yeah and I'm saying you don't have to do it here we have all these lights yeah, available but, yeah but this is an awesome discussion to have because the thing is in that moment our show was created for any environment mm-hmm. with a general with just a general lights on and no just total bare bones even as even if it's a theater and I feel for example in that context what my fear would have what, what, what my fear was is that we're gonna have amazing lights we're going to have amazing dressing and everything's like in black, like the, the table's covered in black cloth and there's no, you don't see any cables. All the wires are hidden mm-hmm. from my music setup. And then we're going to come on and we don't have, first of all, the costume to match that aesthetic. I see. And we don't have the choreography to match that aesthetic. And we don't have the flow. We don't have the material to match that aesthetic. But what we have is really good material for any sort of room just turn all the lights on. There's absolutely no, nothing is hidden. It's all very, so much of so much of traditional theater is having that suspension of disbelief. Is mm-hmm. that is that how you would say it? Yeah, sure. I mean, so you know, we 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 black out the walls. We you're creating a space. We pretend. Yeah, we pretend. It's a it's a bit of a fantasy, which is wonderful and amazing when you have the time, money, and resources to create that fantasy. Right? We've all we've all. I'm, I'm I mean, a lot of us, I guess have been to theater that's that's blown us away because somebody's flying through the air or just even emotionally you go see a play 
the, the play Art or Arcadia or, or uh, Waiting for Godot or something, right? Mm -hmm. and, you, and you have a really powerful emotional connection. It's just people on stage pretending, sure. but they pretend so well that you're into that world. So for example, with the Team RDL stuff and the Shoebox stuff, we, we, we knew we were gonna go into a room like we're in today with big windows. There's no chance we're ever gonna black them out. We're not gonna carry lights with us. We have no budget, no money for those kinds of things. How can we still interface with those expectations. I mean, if you go see a show, if I go see a show, you think there's going to be a performance area. You think that's not going to change. Right. You think there's going to be seats probably off facing in the same direction. You're going to be on a stage elevated. Maybe even elevated. Audience. Yeah, exactly. And you have all these unconscious, subtle cues that we bring as human beings who grew up, for me and you, in America our whole lives watching performances. And I'm gonna go see a show and I'm gonna sit down and I'm not gonna to have to participate because I'm in the audience and they're on stage. And then you have companies like De La Guarda, who did like Fuerza Bruta, who have these big kind of happenings and performance art things where there's no stage, there's no seats, the audience moves around, the audience is, is dancing and taking their clothes off and being hung up by ropes and whatever else. I don't know if you've ever seen De La Guarda. Well, we saw a show called uh, The Donkey Show okay. uh, when we were in Edinburgh. And it was a, a version of Midsummer Night's Dream that took place in a discotheque. Right. So they moved it around. And this immersive theater. Stuff. Immersive theater. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's, that's one way definitely to play with these traditional expectations. And a lot of the work I do in the circus school with my students and in the shoebox tour is not just how do I survive in an environment without black curtains, without uh, lights, right. but how do I not just survive, but how do I utilize that to my advantage? So... For sure, in IJA with the RDL, it's a tough situation because we do have a traditional venue with traditional trappings and a traditional expectation from the audience. Yeah, my feeling was, why aren't they taking advantage I of what the theater has to offer? I think it's time and resources and, and money. And like last night, you see a show where there was, what did you say before? Restrict, re restricted Minimal rehearsal, rehearsal yeah, experience. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Over the years of doing juggling festivals, of doing low budget shows and fitting in here and the, here and there. I want to just run my own sound. I want to run my own lights. Part of running your own lights is not having the traditional lights. Right, um, right. Just, and in many cases you could say you have no lights. Well, how do you deal with that? Well, there's lots of different ways in terms of costuming, set design. What does set design mean? Let me give you an example. Have you ever been to a show normally, let's say in a library with a juggler who's in a library and they have that eight by 10 black curtain behind them and in many ways for me that black curtain just makes it look even more out of place because what they want to try to do is say look we're in a library but let's all pretend we're in a theater right but i don't have enough money to really make it look like a theater so i'm going to give you this little visual cue of a black curtain behind me that we're all going to pretend we're not in this and it's like well you know what a library is cool man i think books look awesome <laughs> eric oberry and i we have a we have a show that toured in sweden now for the past three years that's in that tours the libraries so the, the 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 challenge was how do we make a set design that fits in a library and it turns out you need to have some visual cues that gives an audience a focus of where the performance will happen so even you don't have a defined stage that's elevated because it's in a library there's not a stage in a library naturally there's a floor, there's some bookshelves. <laughs> you need to kind of visually define the space. So we had some set elements that were unusual looking wooden sculptures that he makes, these ghost cubes, that the audience could look at and go, oh, there's an unusual thing there that's, not, that's out of place in a library. I'm gonna visually look there because it's, it's weird. 
And then we would perform around that space, so it kind of defined it. But at the same time, it allowed the environment to exist. It was transparent. So we had kind of a transparent set design. You didn't try to create... A, 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 we didn't a, pretend we were in a theater. Right, you didn't try to recreate a, a theater experience in the library. Exactly. You thought what aesthetic would work to signify the performance space, right. but not what's the most typical thing. I need a backdrop. Yeah. And you can say you can buy one of these uh, little... Spider... spider Yes, yeah, spider table thing. They're awesome. They're from Germany. Spider table. Is that what it is? Yeah, it folds out of a suitcase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're awesome. I want one. But I do a lot of library jobs <laughs> now, and, and there are definitely times where the performing space is basically you're actually in the library, yeah. where some people are still studying, yeah. trying to read, <laughs> and they go, try not to make it too loud. Yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> we've had that too. It's like you hired a show in a library. You don't want it to be too loud. But that was also part of the, the performance we did in a library. We started off thinking, I think when you do a show for a library, your first thought is, especially as a juggler, the people who hire you, they think like, oh, are you going to juggle the books? I and heard that one. We kind of immediately realized libraries aren't about books. Libraries are about, are about what the books contain. Mm-hmm. The books contain knowledge and stories. Right, right, right. And that's what a library really is. I mean, books are traditionally how information has been stored and accessed. And that's just kind of backwards to me to go into a library and think that it's only about the physical book. Because juggling a book, you're talking about the physical paper, the form, sure. the shape, the size. And that's not what a book is. I mean, that's what it physically is. It's a repository is. of ideas. Exactly, yeah. So we thought, okay, let's make a show that's a bit about knowledge or maybe forgotten knowledge or hidden knowledge in terms of... Some, maybe some of these old vaudeville tricks. So we, we, we were able to, to bring back some of the old, old-time old tricks that maybe people don't see so much anymore. And also maybe to try to do some images that you wouldn't normally see in a library. If, an, if a library is a collection of ideas, mm-hmm. and it's so funny, if you go into a library and then they say, well, don't make much noise. Well, maybe I have something to say that makes a lot of noise that, that would be informative to you. <laughs> In our library. Right. So we make a lot of noise at some points. We have a gong and we, sure, have, sure, sure. we have some loud noises because we're trying to do something. We're trying to give the audience some sort of experience that's, again, part of this body of knowledge, but isn't what is traditionally expected in that venue. So let's talk a little bit about the, your show. Because I remember watching pretty much an entire performance or quite a bit of excerpts from your library show. And one piece you did was this piece with the... Uh, hair dryers and ping pong balls. And I should have seen a friend of mine who sort of, sort of, I think was one of the first people to do that technique. Cool, was it Tyler Lincoln? Tyler Lincoln. Yeah. 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 So let's talk about this idea of sort of intellectual property. Yeah. And when does it become inspiration and when does it become theft? Okay, so right on, that's, a, that's perfect. So I have a question for you. There's a trend in the past few years that you do something and then you say, I do a routine. Let's say I do my ping pong ball routine with the hair dryer. Okay. And I say, this was inspired by Tyler Lincoln. It's inspired by. That's, that's kind of this catch-all these days. Sure. Have you, have you heard that? No, because most people I don't think even go there. Okay. <laughs> you know, okay. they don't even go to like... Right. Like when we saw uh, Charlie Peachock on America's Got Talent. Right. Basically do damn and ended his piano routine. Yeah. If he even had said, like during the judging thing or something, let me give a shout out to the actual creator of this routine... People would have said, like, okay, he did it, but at least he acknowledged mm-hmm. that he didn't try to pretend. Because on that show, whenever you see it, it's like, whatever they see, they're like, oh, my God, I've never seen that before. Yeah. You must have invented that trick where you're on the yeah. the Russian bar or whatever it is. <laughs> right, right, they've never seen it before. Right. And some people, they kind of pass it off like, yeah, that's my routine where I bend over backwards and I shoot the arrow, you know, as a contortionist <laughs> yeah. with the bow and arrow. Sure. Whoever thought it up. 
So even someone saying, I was inspired by, for me, yeah. is at least a step in the right direction. Right on. So I have a little story about that. I, when I was younger, I was much more of a punk. I guess we all get a little bit more mellow as we get older. <laughs> but I wrote uh, Rejean St. Jules. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. I, wrote, I wrote him a, a, little, a little email. And I said, Rejean, I can't believe you ripped off Wally Eastwood's bounce piano. And the triangle. <laughs> no, but I, okay. I, I did the Wally Eastwood. Oh, I got you. Right? <laughs> I said, Rajan, I can't believe you ripped off Wally Eastwood's bounce piano. That's so dis- disrespectful for, for Wally. I mean, he oh, was the funny. creator of that trick, and it's just a disgrace. I'm so, I'm so ashamed of you and whatnot. Rajan wrote me back and said, huh, you're so stupid. It's Dan Menendez. It wasn't Wally Eastwood. <laughs> right, I'm, rip- I'm ripping off Dan. Yeah, I guess, you, I guess you didn't get it. But I remember I went to see uh, Rajan St. Jules in Las Vegas in 92 I went, I went with Sean McKinney and he did the bounce he did he did the triangle he did motion triangle he did triangle. the piano inside the triangle <laughs> yeah. that was his that and was his well, uh, innovation well I talked you know, when I talked to Rajon after the show and I said hey so you're doing the triangle and he said yeah but it, it's totally different I do my, my triangle's made of, of clear pla- like acrylic clear acrylic right, right. Uh, I do glow in the dark black light bouncing balls and I do four balls in the end instead of five and so it's really different and I thought, okay, if you, if you, I mean, he's cashing the paycheck, so. Sure, sure. <laughs> but you know, it's funny because one, one thing I look at is if you look at a chick like, let's say, ping pong ball juggling with your mouth. At one time, there was one guy who yeah. said, that's my bit. I own that. And now if you were to do that routine, nobody's looking at you as, oh, you're stealing from this particular person. So when does a routine, like let's say the bounce piano. Yeah. Cross that threshold to now this is everybody's. Or does it ever? Part of that question also comes back to who are we talking about in terms of the community? So we have a few communities involved. We have the professional community. We have the, the, the market, the, the general market at large, including ventriloquists, okay. storytellers, musicians, right? We have the, the market in general who's going to pay money to hire these things. The performing market. We have the hobbyist market who, you know, where me and you started, right? Sure. We, we were hobby jugglers. We, we came into performing. But we also maybe have a deeper knowledge of the history than the performing market. And then we have kind of the historians. Sure, sure. <laughs> Who's even even a smaller subset of this of these of these genres. And so I would guess that the ping pong the ping pong ball spitting is again it's all context. The hobbyists who are kind of the gatekeepers at this point of nerd culture. <laughs> okay. They 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 don't know who came up with ping pong balls. Therefore it's kind of a general it's a yeah, general I think it was I, I think I know it's the Baldinis. Because <laughs> so I'm yeah, yeah. that no, David Kane yeah, nerd. Exactly. Yeah, Carl Heinz Ethan. <laughs> exactly. And every, yeah, so so we kind of know, but there there is this this general knowledge among the hobbyists, and that's maybe the gauge or something. That's maybe okay. the, that's the test, because in the performing market, generally nobody knows, right? They hire Rajon, or they don't. They don't care. care. They don't care. If you're on a cruise ship, it's they don't they don't care. And it's also uh, traditional circus versus contemporary performing. And I don't mean contemporary in terms of experimental. Mm-hmm. I mean literally performing of today. Right. Because in traditional circus. That's what you do is you, you look at an act and you say, I'm going to do that act. And then you do that act, throw for throw, catch for catch, trick for trick. That's just their culture. Whether it's ethically or morally right, that is their tradition that yeah. they have grown up in. So for them, they see no problem. That's just what you do. Right. right. I, don't, I don't think that justifies it. But just to let you know where they're coming from, there was a Russian guy recently who ripped off Greg Kennedy's cone. Right. It's not cool. Greg, Greg made the cone. Sure, sure. He's doing it in Cirque du Soleil. But again, this tradition of where people come from in traditional In China as well. It's like, yeah. that's what we do. You see the video? I mean, I did, a, I did a show in Venice a few years ago, and they had a Chinese troupe doing 
the Bankin act from Kidam, same costume, same choreography, same tricks, same music from the CD that Cirque du Soleil sells. Right. <laughs> it, was the, it was an entire copy of the act from China done impeccably. <laughs> it was the exact same routine, but still it's the same routine. It's so weird. And TV, it was a TV show. They didn't care. They just, oh, here's... A, here's well, they don't know. Like here's you're saying, content. They, they don't have knowledge of, right. oh, this is great. They're not saying, okay, this is great, but... Is this your original creation? Yeah. Is it right for us to show And this? what is the value of that? And in terms of if thinking about Tyler Lincoln with the floating a ping pong ball on a hairdryer and say the act that Eric and I have in our show now, I think for me a personal test or a personal gauge of am I ripping somebody off or am I plagiarizing or am I inspired by mm-hmm. or whatever yeah. is does it take it to at least a next step? So if Tyler... Maybe he's not going to be happy if he sees my routine and says, hey, that was my thing with the ping pong ball sure, or sure. whatever. But maybe he would see the routine and go, oh, you did what you did a concept I was working with, but you, you did something new with it. So you took it to a new place I never thought of. And I think in the show, because now there's a million people doing ping pong balls and hair dryers over the years. There's, have you seen Blizzard concept from Do they do the France? whole bunch of them on yeah. that? Yeah, they it's do awesome, like a, it's right? awesome. Yeah. yeah. And uh, there's also... In the past years, uh, Philippe Menard, a juggler from France who worked with Jerome, who's now Fia Menard. Okay, don't know him. Uh, she. Oh, she. Yeah, no, there you go. Yeah, obviously. Uh, so she had a whole. When she was a heat. He, so Philippe Menard. <laughs> oh, I'm uh, saying, so she transitioned. Yeah, I so, got but, you. but before the transition, uh, he had a whole show with uh, a, a bunch of ping pong, uh, a bunch of hair dryers in a row with ping pong balls on it. It was a whole little scene with a big magnifying mm-hmm. glass. and. A lot of our work in the the show with Eric came from watching these other acts and saying, floating a ball on top of a hairdryer is is really cool, but then they never really did much with it. Sure. Nothing you use like happen. a ping pong paddles. Yeah, I appreciate that you took the technique, because I always look at it like on a sliding scale. If you see something and you copy it exactly, yeah. that's the lowest <laughs> on the scale. Yeah. If you take something and make some kind of minor adjustment, like, oh, he uses red balls, I use blue balls. Right. Or right. he used, his, his uh, triangle is wood. <laughs> yeah, mine is plastic. Mine is acrylic. But then the next level is, like you're saying, you could still recognize where it came from. Base concept, maybe. But it's like, let's say, let's go back to Michael Motion and the contact juggling. Yeah. When you see someone wearing a black outfit, using crystal balls, mm. doing basically the same aesthetic and moves as Michael Motion, I can understand what he'd be like, that is completely wrong. Yeah, yeah. But I remember seeing Tony Duncan do mm-hmm. his contact juggling and say, look, he took that same concept. I can still see where he was inspired. Sure. But at least I can appreciate the artistry that he brought to it. And I think what, because I've known Michael Motion over the years. I've had the privilege to talk to him a lot and hang out with him. And I've heard him tell the story about the crystal balls. I've heard him give a lecture mm-hmm. on it. In fact, a little story is we were performing together in Paris. We were in the same show. And he did a piece the night, uh, in the show with his tap dancing, with the ball bouncing with his feet. I don't know if you've seen that. I so believe so, yeah. He has a little soundboard and he has three silicone balls. He's tap dancing and bouncing balls with his feet and making rhythms. And the next day he was going to give a lecture at the, at the theater about the piece he had made for Cirque du Soleil with Pat McGuire, mm-hmm. Steve Agatz, and Jean Bernard. And the big Dorito. For Mystere. The silver Dorito chips. Yeah, the, the metal wave shapes. And he had in I was walking with him to the theater and he had in his hand a videotape, a one hour long videotape of the creation of that piece. And we're walking to the theater and we're just talking casually. And then when we get to the theater, we go to the front doors and there's about 10 French jugglers with no shoes on, with silicone balls, trying to bounce them with their feet. Ugh. 
And of course, Michael's very sensitive about these sure, subjects sure, sure. at the best of times. Yes. So Michael turns to me. He shows me. He holds up the tape, and he says, "Nobody's ever going to see this." And he puts it in his bag. He puts <laughs> right, it right. in his bag, and he goes in and he gives a lecture for an hour about how he created the crystal ball piece. And from what I took away from that day, was he's not opposed so much to people doing the crystal ball or wearing black or doing that same aesthetic. What he's opposed to is he says, "Look, I went through this huge process to make that work, and I mean the process was pretty hardcore, pretty personally traumatic. I mean it's a very it's about the birth of his child or something. Well, no, I mean, it's, about his, it's about his sister dying. Oh, okay. yeah. I mean it's really and it's and right. I mean some people make fun of that. I mean it's it's easy to it's easy to uh, to be sure. dramatic about it. Yeah, yeah. But I mean it was it was an honest story, and that's where that's where it came from in his heart. I mean it was an honest story. Yeah. And it was it was a process. He was very clear about his process." And he said, look, I went through this process and I came up with this thing. And then when you take it from me, you didn't go through a process. Sure. So I don't get anything out of that. He went through this big process and he made this whole genre called that other people called contact juggling. And then look at what the world got. Right. Right. I think a beautiful thing. Sure. I think it was great. But his point is by you taking off, you ripping, just taking that crystal ball and, and doing his aesthetic, you're not giving the world back. Plus, you're not exploring your own personal creative... Or at least he doesn't get anything out of you doing that. <laughs> but I also think that's what's important. To me, the idea is... I, I read a, an article or heard a podcast. I think it was a magician. And they said, what do you do? What, how do you describe yourself? And he said, my job is to create. And so I look at that and saying, yeah, I've used juggling as my medium. But my real goal is to create through this medium. Yeah. And by bypassing the creation process, mm. can you really truly be an artist if you really have no creation process? If you're more of an imitator or aper right. of other people's material, aren't you really just shortchanging yourself right. mostly out of everybody? Yeah. And then again, that's really nice. And I mean, I, I agree. And that's conceptual. But also then there is this reality of, hey, somebody's going to pay you X amount of dollars to perform the triangle at Circus Circus. Right, right, right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, we, like... have, we, we live in the real world. There are, right. We all have to decide among ourselves, yeah. where do I place importance? Yeah. Uh, I, I remember when I was a teenager, I, I encountered this idea for the first time ever, this whole idea of plagiarism and whatnot. I was doing a club trick at the Akron. There used to be the Rubber City Jugglers in Akron, Ohio. It was probably around 1987 or 88 or something. And I was doing a little club trick that I thought I had made up and probably I didn't. Sure. As far as I knew, okay. I had this stupid little trick. And I was doing it in the gym and I was kind of happy. I was like, oh, here's my little trick. And then I saw somebody across the gym kind of uh, start to maybe do the same thing. And for a moment, I was really like, oh, that's not, that's not fun. That's not cool. That's my trick or something. Because, you know, we all have this little pride when we start out sure. like that. Actually, I was kind of surprised at an early age I could realize and say, Oh, but they don't do it as good as I do it. <laughs> because I kind of knew where that trick came from. I was maybe doing a back cross, but I, it had earlier been an under the leg. And I knew the timing and I knew the... Like, not, so it had a deeper... I wasn't, I wasn't so conscious, but you know, there was right, a right. feeling of like, oh, it should actually go here under my arm instead of behind my head. And then I kind of knew how to do the trick much... I did it much smoother because I, I had the whole process of learning that trick and all the tricks that came before it. Right. And then I saw somebody across the gym who just took the final trick that I was doing and they didn't quite have the rhythm or the whatever and I said okay yeah they're doing it but actually they're not going to do it ever as good as I did it plus I have a million other I have literally 20 other tricks that led up to that one trick I'm much more richer for it so I kind of had that realization early on which I'm really grateful for because yeah. I always have that in my mind and if well, it's hard to let go it's hard to let go of your ideas the only time I well one of the only times I've been upset because I'm a pretty big guy who wants to control <laughs> my creative output yeah uh, was I, I came up with a juggling trick it's where you line up like three balls in your arm and oh, you yeah. kind of, yeah, yeah. they all sort of stay in place. I know place. that one, yeah. 
and then a juggler t- uh, showed it in Juggler's World magazine uh-huh, uh-huh. in the teach-in section. Yeah. With no, 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 didn't attribute it to me at all. Yeah. I'm like, now people are looking at that, thinking that's your trick that you created. It goes. It kind of goes back to this. It kind of goes back to this culture. And again, our culture is very confused because it's a big mix of people. It's professionals, hobbyists, right. historians, beginners. Everybody has different intentions and different desires. But as a culture, we don't have it built into us where we we're not used to crediting people, or not right. even crediting people, but realizing where stuff comes from. And in many ways, juggling history is much more defined from a hundred years ago than it is today. Also, because of the information explosion, there's so much. There's just so much juggling coming out every single day on on YouTube. You can never uh, catalog it or understand it all. Whereas a hundred years ago, well, there's one book. It's Carl's book. There's right. this. There's this one photo. You can kind of comprehend that. But at the same time, if we had some sort of built-in system in our juggling culture, when you started off learning the cascade, if you would teach somebody the cascade and you would say, oh, and by the way, it was Dan Holtzman who invented the cascade, and now you know. And then when they would teach someone... Well, they know now. Yeah, well, then they could teach someone and say, hey, you know what, not only do you throw the ball across to the other hand, also, by the way, Dan Holtzman made that pattern. Isn't that cool? And then you can go to Dan's website, blah, blah, blah. And then we have it in our culture. And for me, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by how tricks spread, and I'm fascinated by where they come from. Every year, especially before the internet, when you go to the IJA, you would see that new trick that everybody was doing and it would kind of pop out of the culture. And you would see one or two people doing that club balance. And you said, but nobody did that last year. Right, right, and right. these people lived on different sides of the world or different parts of the country. How did, they, how did that pop out of the culture? And it's because the technique evolved and kind of percolated and, and these things would pop up. And that still happens now sure. at a much rap, more rapid pace, kind of weekly because of the internet, because of YouTube videos. And you can kind of start to spread the, the, the technique around so much so much easier. But this idea of having some, I always thought maybe to have a website, a central depository, where you could upload a video and say, well, hey, this is a trick that I made. Did anybody else do it yet? And of course, people can lie. Of course, you could have right, that. Right, right. But I think, again, you have like Wikipedia. It's a peer, it's a peer-reviewed website. Mm-hmm. So to have some sort of, if the IJA would have a tricks a tricks tab on their website would be awesome. You could you could be on your own in the middle of in the north of Norway. You come up with a three ring trick. Right, right. Oh, I think I came up with a new trick. You go to the IJA's website. You click on that link. There's all the three ring tricks in the world. If you had the time, <laughs> it would have to be what do you call it? Hashtagged so you sure. can search the database. In any case, three ring tricks. It involves rolling a ring on my head. One bounces on the floor. So you go ring, bounce, head, roll. You get like ten results. You watch all the videos and you go oh. Actually, my trick is a new trick and you upload it there. You put your name on it, you put the date. Maybe you put the process or the other videos that led up to that trick. Or again, then you go to the website and you go, oh, it's actually video number three is the same trick I'm doing, but I do a slightly different variation and you could link it. If we had some sort of map, I think that would be really fun. But I I mean, I think it's probably practically impossible. Just the last thing to say on it is that when we did Renegade Design Lab with Tom Renegade from Renegade Juggling, Eric and I and Luke, we had a bunch of new prop shapes we wanted to build. And we went to Tom and Tom said, yeah, let's do this. And we had a little bit of a problem because we wanted to sell the shapes not to make money. It wasn't about a commercial endeavor, right? but it was just about to make them accessible and the shapes aren't free for Tom to make. Sure. So, hey, let's pay, you know, here's 10 bucks for a triangle or a square or whatever it is. It got to the point though where people were like, no, I don't want to buy triangles because that's your thing. So we tried, Luke tried really hard to make this idea of open source 
props and you have these creative commons in copyright law, creative commons where it's share and share alike with attribution and mm. you, you, you give credit to the, to the lineage of the development, but you can use it for non-commercial purposes, copy the design, modify the design. All the designs are open source, all the plans are online. You can go see the drawings, the sketches. Tom will tell you, you know, what kind of plastic, like how big they are. You can make your own if you want, or you can buy it from him. And we try to spread the culture that way. But because juggling has this kind of weird middle ground with plagiarism where a lot of people copy, but there's still this kind of feeling that you shouldn't copy. So I made a video at one point with the triangles. I know some people were just like, oh, it's really cool, but it's your, the, you're the I triangle. You're, you're the little small plastic triangle guy. I don't want to juggle like that. And fair enough, I, I get it. But at the same time, it's, it's when you want to push a culture, when you want to share a technique, it can sometimes be a little bit weird, if, especially in our culture where it's not just about the pattern that you're juggling, but the objects you're using to juggle that pattern. Well, like I look, sometimes I put these new little videos on Facebook, like I have a, I call it the Holzman Laboratory. Laboratory, yeah. As opposed to copyright, the, uh, copyright 2015. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but the idea is sometimes you think, oh, I don't want people to copy these things, but at the same time, if you don't put them out into the world, what's the purpose of them? But it's the same. Wes has the problem with his videos too. So Wes Peden sells all these videos online of his work. He'll make a half hour long or hour long mm -hmm. video and he'll put it on his website and charge whatever it is, 10 bucks and you download it. So do you own those tricks? You just paid $10. Exactly. And it's like, well, no, you don't own those tricks. You, it's like any other, it's like a piece of music or a, 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 another movie. You go, you go to pay a ticket to a movie theater. You don't own the new James Bond film. You're right. You can't then recreate the James Bond <laughs> yeah. film. So I, I bought the video. Yeah, but a lot of but that is kind of a weird situation where he wants to put those tricks in the world to inspire people, but at the same time, again, inspiration. We we had talked earlier. Well, I like what he said. He said about people want to copy creative jugglers. Yeah. By copying what they created. Yeah. Which seems they've lost the, the point. Which is, you want to be like do what I'm doing. You need to create your own material because that's what you that's what you appreciate about me. But when I was growing up, and maybe I saw, maybe I said a little bit about this on the Marcus Monroe podcast. But when I was growing up, it was always perform the jazz music or or and you wear you wear like the, the tuxedo, the vest, yeah, yeah. the vest and the, and the black dress pants. But that's because that was what was contemporary when juggling was kind of popular in vaudeville, <laughs> and that was carried over to today. Well, jazz music isn't contemporary anymore. Britney right. Spears is, or was. Big band music. Sorry, I just dated myself. Uh, <laughs> Britney wait, Spears. Wait, wait, who, who's hot right now? Uh, yeah, now it's for Kanye. John and, uh, Tesh? Yeah, John, oh, yeah, there Kanye. you go. Oh, okay, let's say, let's say Kanye. So I'm going to use Kanye tonight because you said that. Okay. So, um, I don't understand Kanye West. No? I know you're a big fan. Oh, man, he's a genius. Well, that's another exposed. podcast. Okay, all right. <laughs> let's go to our third subject. No, but, let's, no, but I just okay. want to say that to be, to, if you want to copy juggling, because that's what people were doing, and they would play jazz music and right. wear the vest, mm -hmm. they're copying juggling. But that was back when juggling was kind of invented, that style was invented. If you actually want to copy them, you would use contemporary music. You would dress in contemporary clothing. So that's what they were doing in their time. Yeah. It's like magicians. There's definitely the character of the magician. So mm -hmm. when you portray right. that character, you're portraying the classic magician. You're in the tuxedo, you're producing doves, right. you have this particular type of music, mm. and you're playing the part... The cultural role of the magician. Yeah, yeah. So let's look at like when you're building a routine, and what's the place... Because I was talking about my desire to have the technique being as simple as possible with the most effect. Like, mm. I don't want the technique to be the star. Like if you look at an Anthony Gatto, basically it's look how wonderful my technique is. 
hmm. how difficult. One reason you're enjoying what I'm doing is because it's so difficult. Yeah. Where for me, I'm like, look how clever this idea was hmm. built on whatever technique I need hmm. to have the idea. Yeah. But I never go like the I, the technique is what is the most impressive thing about, which is why I think sometimes it's easy to steal because. Mm-hmm. It's not the technique that's hard. It was the idea <laughs> right. that was hard. I hear you. So where does technique in your in your work yeah. play into the building of routines? That reminds me of the question. It's always uh, people always say, "Why would you go on stage and juggle five rings, or why would you juggle six rings?" There's always the, "Why are you jugg- why are you juggling six rings? You can just do five. The audience doesn't know the difference, right? We've all heard that sure, when we sure. start off juggling. Well, I mean, on one hand, you could you could you could you could agree, and you could say, "Sure, they're dumb." <laughs> Right, right, right. But again, then you're, you're not giving your audience much credit. Yeah, <laughs> they can appreciate that six is harder than five. I don't want to perform for dumb people. Right, right, right. And I don't think people are dumb. But there is. But you could just say, sure, in general, we could generalize and say, maybe the average person in an average audience um, wouldn't know the difference between five and six rings. But it always comes up to me to think that, well, wait a second, you know the difference if you're doing it. And isn't your job to be a curator I mean, it depends on how good you want to be at your job and what you think your job is and what is your goal. Right. If, you want to, if you want to tell a joke and the joke isn't based upon the number of rings, then yeah, who cares? Do six rings or five rings or three rings or no rings, actually. Maybe the rings are distracting. Sure. I mean, there's so many, there's so many times you see a juggling show where actually they shouldn't juggle. They should just go to clown school and be really good clowns or really good storytellers or they should stop juggling and be chefs or something and like cook for the... Or be actors, or yeah, comics. whatever, or whatever. What is your what is your real goal? This idea of five or six rings. I think as a juggler, if you're going to try to care about the juggling for a second, you need to be the smarter one in the room. Because of course they don't know, because they're not jugglers, but you are. Right. So do you want to do the six ring? I mean, is the six rings? What does that mean? What does it give? If you don't care if it's five or six rings, then do five. Sure. What we're generally talking about is what you had said before: is you don't like to drop. You don't, don't like to have a failure of intention. I like to feel very comfortable and confident so that I can convey my personality, my humor, Yeah. not at the expense of worrying about, oh, when this trick comes up, oh, God, I hope I nail exactly. it. And it. And that kind of comes back to having a plan for when you drop. And this is a little bit earlier in our conversation talking about drops, but I had a show with a drummer, Eric Nielsen, and it was a one-hour-long show that was an improvisation, which sounds... Like it could be terrible. Right, right, right. <laughs> it could be terribly boring. But the idea of the show was basically that we had two concepts. The first concept was that we go until we die. So it got pretty extreme at the end. I mean, we would literally go till we were laying on the floor and we couldn't move. So it, it was physically exhausting. At least there was that human component to right. the whole We're going till exhaustion. To the arc, yeah. It, so there was some sort of drama there. But the second thing was I really tried to define to redefine what is success and what is failure in terms of technique. Because our traditional definition of success is you catch it and the, uh, the first time. Sure. <laughs> and the definition of failure is, well, if you mess up the first time, you failed. Even if, even if you get it the second time, everybody saw. That's the thing about juggling. If you make a drop or a mistake, everybody sees it. It's a visual. You can't hide it. If you're playing music, you can kind of cover it. If you're dancing, you can kind of wave your arms around a little bit. But if you're on... It's like falling and ice skating. It's hard to go, oh, I meant to fall there. If you're... Exactly. And if you're on The Tonight Show or something, you drop drop a club. I mean, that's that's there. Who's ever done that? <laughs> hey, not me. <laughs> not me. Well, there you go. <laughs> no, but so, so in this show with this drummer, what we tried to do 
was to say success is when I catch the trick, no matter saying, no matter how long it takes. Right. In that situation, you're saying, look, what I'm showing you is at the at the edge of my abilities. Exactly. Exactly. And if it takes me five tries. You're really seeing, I'm not showing you something that I should have gotten on the first try. And my drop line was the drummer. So I had this guy who was amazingly skilled, who could improvise and really riff on mm -hmm. what was happening in the moment. So even if something dropped, he could kind of hit the hit the drum right when everything hit the floor. And it didn't look intentional, but it looked like it was along the way. It wasn't a, uh, outside of what we had thought might happen. So now, if you're looking about the idea of creating material, how important do you think it is to create a base technique? Do you think it's like, well, you should learn five clubs, you should learn seven mm, objects man. before you move into the artistic realm because it gives you that kind of strong, like, like a skater. Like you're not going to go for the triple axle before you build this very linear base of technique working up to that. That's such a great question. It's something I struggle with every day because... Let's say I'm choreographing a new piece or I'm, I'm yeah, structuring a new routine or whatnot, and I get to a point and I say, wouldn't it be great to juggle nine rings here? And I can juggle nine rings a little bit in practice if I warm up like for a long time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I say, okay, so here's my, here's my dilemma. Do I kind of stick that trick in that moment and think that the show's in three months and I kind of do the math as we're gonna practice this many hours a day for that many weeks, and then where's my cutoff point? If in two months, if I'm not hitting that trick as much as I want to or as much as I need to, do I cut it, do I change it? And I struggle with that question every day to try to allocate my resources in an efficient way. And you say to yourself, okay, maybe I just don't do the nine rings, maybe I just do three rings and I do this other trick or something. So there's always this weird, I'm always stuck in that dilemma because we are in this profession. Plus there's a time thing, you're saying like, yeah. this would be a two second moment. Yeah that I'd have to devote Invest. <laughs> this many hours. And you have so much, so many resources. Yeah, so when I go back to my technical ideas, it's like, right. I can take this one idea. Like sometimes when I have coaching, I say, can you take a, a basically just a three ball cascade? That's the only skill you can have is yeah. you can start and stop a three ball cascade. You can do 10 throws. Yeah. Can that be an eight minute routine? Yeah. Just based on that technique. Yeah, yeah. And my answer is, of course. I think so too. Yeah. And the way this answers the original question about having a base technique mm -hmm. is, if I had a better base technique, I could do those nine rings with m much little, uh, much more creative opportunity be based on your pre-existing skills. Exactly. So, so I would use less resources to put it in the act. So I think if you have a higher base level, well, it's like speaking a foreign language. I always use this analogy. It's not perfect, mm -hmm. but juggling the more words you right. can you can learn of a foreign language, the better you can speak to express yourself in more in deeper ways. So with juggling, I mean, if you can't do five club cascade and then all of a sudden you, you get to this point in your routine and you want to maybe do even just three club faster rhythm or something sure. that could be part of a five club technique, then I think, yeah, you're, you're going to spend more resources to get where you maybe need to go. I think what's important today for sort of the modern commercial market is to have a breadth of skills. Mm. Meaning if you're expected to do 60 minutes mm. on a ship mm. uh, or even 30 minutes on a fair stage or 45 minutes at a library, whatever it is, if you're basically, I juggle balls, rings, and clubs, the ability to stretch that into this length of show is a lot more difficult than mm. I do devil sticks, Diablos, mm. cigar boxes, shaker cups. Because I've always been known, I think, as someone who maybe wasn't the best in any one particular skill, but really like, wow, Dan does a lot of different things pretty well. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the area I went into. And then when I 
develops this this longer show, I had well, okay, I have these skills to draw upon. Yeah. So this routine could be three minutes, and then I have this routine three minutes. As opposed to going, I need to get nine minutes out of my mm. club juggling by itself. Mm, yeah. Again, it goes back to the market you're playing and what those people want out of that. Sure, because you could do eight minutes in yeah. your whole career, yeah. and that's your career. Yeah, man. That's, that's crazy, by the way. I never understood that. Yeah, yeah, but that's pretty cool. Let's talk about some... Maybe we'll, we'll go back and forth. About cool, cool. What jugglers are important to you, and why are they important? And the biggest one is, is Michael Motion for me. I okay. mean, he, he invented the whole genre of what I do. Interesting. So, yeah, he's... And how would you describe that genre? How would you sum that up, then? I mean, he brought juggling into the contemporary, uh, into the contemporary scene. To, to the intellectual type of market, you think? The, I just think in the present day, I just think he made it at his, when he did it, he just made it relevant to here and now. Interesting. And I find so much of, of the other part of juggling to be a little bit, not outdated, but definitely has stronger ties to a, a, a older tradition. Mm. So yeah, Michael's the man. Okay. <laughs> All right, for me, I got to start with my, my go-to guy which is almost the, not the opposite of, of Michael Motion, because he definitely followed a lineage of old school technique. Yeah. But for me personally, it was Chris Cremo. Yeah, but he's awesome. Because when I saw Chris Cremo, he was the first real juggler yeah. that I saw. And I really didn't know what juggling was at that point. I remember seeing Chris Cremo's name in the TV guide. It was Merv Griffin, and it said, Chris Cremo Juggler. Nice. And my, my history was I saw a juggler, I think his name was Bobby Sandler. That was the first time I saw a juggler. And he juggled and he ate the apple. He was promoting the apple industry and he got on huh. some TV shows. Okay. And he had curly hair and he would, the two tricks I remember is he'd roll the balls off his head okay. and he ate the apple. Okay. This was the same time that the Carlo book, uh, yep. juggling book by Carlo came out in 1974. Yep. Dating myself, I was yep. two. And I was like 13, I was born in 61. Yeah. And so I learned from the juggling book, and if you look at like the, what Carlo's teaching, and if you saw Carlo juggle, this guy was not what I would call a top professional juggler. He taught sure. it very well through the book. Sure. And Bobby Sandler was a guy I could look at and go, I'm as good as this guy. I see. With, within a very quick amount of time. Right. Based on the couple of tricks I saw him do. Right. And so when I saw Chris Cremo, right. I realized I didn't think I could do that. Right. I, I had some dreams, I think, about being a professional juggler because mm. it was quite a distance of time, like maybe even a few years between learning to juggle and then being more experienced in what juggling was in the bigger picture. I remember seeing Chris Cremo just thinking, oh, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I couldn't even imagine right. what he was doing and the charisma and the presence. And I was not a guy who really felt I had charisma or mm. presence. So for me, and, and what we were talking about before, one of the best things about this profession is you do get to meet your idols. Mm. And I'm going to tear up here. Yeah, yeah. But for me, one of the best things was meeting Chris Cremo. Yeah. He was so effing cool. Yeah, man. <laughs> He's the coolest. Yeah, we, I, did, I did an EJC in Ireland with Manu Lott, and we kind of, there was a show, it was a really strange welcoming show. It was... Manu and I did a, 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 an act and then Chris Cremo and that was it right 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 that was the whole thing yeah yeah and Chris was there and, and we went back we were backstage with Chris he came he actually came up to us he approached us and he said thank you so much for letting me juggle after you after you guys yeah, he's, <laughs> we, he's, just, we just fell over because he's I mean, everything you want Chris Cremo to be he was the best guy <laughs> but I mean in terms of uh, yeah so Chris for me Chris Cremo as well but I have to say Anthony Gatto sure I mean after Michael it's Anthony and yeah. just one thing about Michael really quick is Everybody thinks, or it appears to be, that he's very 
experimental or contemporary compared to say Chris Cremo. Sure. But if you go back and look at all those micromotion routines, they're very traditionally structured. Sure, sure. He's not a guy who repeats or loops. It's very much here's this trick and now here's this image and now here's this image. It's very, it's very much like Chris, Chris Cremo in one way. So yeah. I think it, it's, it, he's from the same time, it's from the same genre, the, the, the same time. Can I say yeah, Anthony Gatto also is very important to me. Yeah. When I look at Anthony Gatto, I, I say to people, I say, you can tell me someone else in the history of juggling yeah. is a better technical juggler than Anthony Gatto, but you're wrong. Yeah. No, but that's, that's, that's <laughs> yeah, funny. You can tell me that, but you're wrong. Well, I'm here's sorry. A, well, the funny thing that happened with Anthony is that kind of when the internet exploded, he was kind of on his way out of going to festivals. Right. So he used to go to the IJA and all these other festivals and people could meet him. He went to the, to the BJC mm-hmm. one year. But then when the internet community and YouTube kind of burst out, Gato wasn't around. He hadn't been around for a couple years. So the, the, the new generation of jugglers, sure. kids on the internet, they hadn't seen Anthony in real life. And then, and, but now on the internet, we can talk to people across the world. So the, everybody was talking and everybody's saying, oh, now we have Bova, now we have Thomas Dietz. Like, yeah, those people are amazing, but they're not Anthony Gatto. Well, also I look at <laughs> when you see a Vova and you say, okay, here's a guy in the gym, in the backyard, yeah, just putting together an edited version. Like, if you've seen Vova juggle seven clubs, I've seen him do 20, 30 seconds in the gym or longer. I don't know what yeah. his record is. But when you see Anthony Gatto doing seven clubs in the most pressure-filled, like the, like the gold medal, uh, yeah. was it Circa... Uh, Monte, Monte Carlo, Carlo yeah. which has got to be the highest pressure situation for a juggler. Yeah. Just nailing it. Yeah. It's different. Yeah. It's different. You can't say they're both great jugglers because they both can do the same trick. Right. One can do it here. Yeah. And one can do it here. Yeah. Like Francis Brun is a great juggler. If you say Francis Brun's a great juggler and Volva Galchenko is a great juggler, yeah. to me, it's your different definition of great is too different. Sure. I mean, I remember uh, uh, Carl Heinz, Ethan, you know, he, he was talking one day about uh, Sergei Ignatov and said Sergei never really did a lot of TV mm-hmm. because Sergei, uh, he wasn't in a live show. He would pull off the most amazing performances. And I have to say, I've seen Sergei live and totally amazing. But on TV, he would have some mistakes. I mean, he would always have maybe one or two little yeah. mistakes. But on TV, it's different. You know, you kind of have to nail it clean perfectly. For the, so the person at home who's just zapping through on sure, the show. Sure, sure can just kind of get that instant... They don't have to edit it. It's like, oh, it went for Yeah, we don't instant gratification. It. There's no emotional investment in it. Whereas live, Sergey could could overcome... The, or it's the Russian ending as well. We passed the 10 clubs. Sure, we're going to drop twice. We dropped twice. <laughs> nail it the third time. <laughs> yeah. You, you heighten that emotion. Yeah. Whereas... So Ignatov didn't translate well to, to maybe that format of TV because he, he, had that, he had that inside of him. But no one, I think, has been as consistent at the highest technical level... And if you watch Anthony juggle, people yeah. always give him a knock, like, oh, he's not as artistic when you compare him to a Victor Key or somebody. Right. But when you watch Anthony juggle, his expressions, his movement is always selling the juggling. Oh, yeah. There's never a blank moment where this guy is purely a robot mm-hmm. doing the technique. He's always performing the juggling at its highest level. Again, you can kind of come back to definitions and meanings of words, and you say this word circus artist, and then you have this idea of artist. Uh, also, which means somebody who maybe paints a picture, right, 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 right. And exp- and paints, or who's artistic, paints flowers, <laughs> yeah, 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 or whatever. And then you could say, oh, but Anthony, he's just a craftsman, right? That's that's kind of this argument I've heard before. Mm. And people say, well, how can he be an artist? At the same time, then people argue and say, well, he's not expressing anything other than the juggling. And this is going to sound 
probably pretty pretentious, but you could definitely say that Anthony Gatto is expressing the human condition. I mean, when I watch Anthony, there is a small part of me that's unconscious that I can't control that goes, I can't believe human beings can do that. Sure, sure. And that is part of being human, and that's part of the emotion of theater and live performance. And that's what I think the person sitting next to me when I went to see Kuza, when he was in Cirque du Soleil and Kuza, mm-hmm. and the people sitting next to me, they weren't jugglers, and the, definitely not the way I'm a juggler. Right, right. And they were just like people who went to see, they paid a ton of money to see a trendy, stupid sure, you know, sure, show. Sure. And then there's Gatto, and they're blown away. They're not blown away because they know how many catches, they weren't counting how many catches of nine rings he did. They're blown away because this guy is in front of them doing powerful things that they can't explain. He's operating at the limits He's a of human. human ability. And they're a human. That's their common ground. They can, even though the layman can understand, this guy is like when you watch a guy run 100 meters, right. like, like Usain Bolt. Right. You're going, even if you don't know the record, you're going, this guy is at the limit of human ability. ability yeah. And so for Gatto to be, I think the one thing that happened with Gatto, this is just my personal take on it, and why maybe he got a bit of a bad rap, unfortunately, in the juggling community, mm. is people felt, like on the internet, that their viewpoints and their their ideas were as valid right. as Anthony Gatto's. Right. Like he'd say, this is how, this is what I believe. Yeah. And they're going, well, this is what I believe. and. <laughs> they should be on equal footing yeah. in juggling. And yeah. I'm like, no, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. His should have more weight. He's coming from this place of just huge achievement, huge effort put yeah. into ju- understanding juggling. I think Anthony is, I mean, I, I could be wrong on this, but I think Anthony is one of the last of that generation who, who had, who who grew up in sh- what we what I'll say was show the golden age of show business maybe mm-hmm. the review shows yeah he came up through the Vegas reviews we have show business today but it's very different than than yes. when Albert Lucas was around and Gatto like and, you look at like maybe Paul Ponce yeah he came from that lineage and has that kind of act right but very few people have that kind of act of the Albert Lucases the Dick Frank going back to that having an eight minutes and that's all you do exactly for your whole life and it was <laughs> so solid like I saw I saw Albert Lucas another guy that unfortunately has a bit of a bad rap, but was very instrumental and important in juggling. And also a very, you know, he has his ideas about juggling the Olympics mm-hmm. and what makes a great juggler and his place sure. in juggling. But I always go back to my first story about Albert Lucas, which was, I saw him at the Ice Capades and I was like 16, 17. And I was such a kook that I brought my devil stick Oh yeah, I heard you. To the show. (laughs) And because I thought, maybe I can meet the juggler and show him that I'm a juggler too. Sure. And he was so kind to me and so welcoming that it really set a good tone for my relationship with Albert for the rest of of my... I haven't seen him in many years, unfortunately. I hear he's still working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But talk about a consistent... But going back, yeah, if you have an eight-minute act your whole life, and also just a long relationship to juggling, like you and I have, mm-hmm. I've been juggling thirty years now. Yeah, yeah. And so, I think at some point you have to find something. You have to, you have to find a deeper connection to juggling or whatever you do to keep going. Right. I, I mean, so so maybe with Albert, it is the sport juggling, the International Sport Juggling Federation that sure. he wanted to do. He has these. He has juggling. He has this deeper connection, and then you look at Anthony. I know Anthony tried to do some coaching. He tried to have some online things. He had his forum. He had a deeper... He put YouTube videos out for a while. Sure. And then maybe he didn't find that deeper connection as along with his... I don't think it was appreciated. Along with his physicality. And then that kind of... Now he's he's stopped. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think he has no real connection to the juggling community. Right. Because I think he got sort of embittered to the fact that it's tough. I think even Albert Lucas, to some degree, 
we all deal with the image of the juggler in popular culture. Right on, yeah. So when you go to someone and say, I'm a juggler, and they're like, oh, will you do my kid's party, or yeah. do you work on the street, or do you do a chainsaw? Yeah. We understand that the layman, that's the layman's approach, but a lot of jugglers definitely want to be appreciated at least by the juggling community. By their peers. At least you should understand right. what I'm doing. Right. So when they don't get that, like when someone like Anthony Gatto offers his coaching services mm. and people don't realize how valuable, they should have been knocking down the guy's door. Yeah. So here he's probably saying like, here I am offering my services mm. and yet only a couple people are interested. Yeah. How is that even possible? It's, it's, a, it's a hard... Uh it's, it's hard to balance it. Like you said earlier, you watch all the videos online. You, you listen to the podcasts yeah. and, and you, you're still interested in juggling. I think about Mark Neiser. He's a great example. Mark still loves juggling. Yeah. And for me, it's not just that he has a long career, but that he still is curious. He wants to know about juggling. That gives me so much hope that as I continue to go on, I can also not burn out on it's my It's possible. My you just passion. have to figure out, do I repeat the same experience over and over again? like some of these fellas who have an eight minute act. And I looked at that and said, well, how can you just take this one picture, this one creation yeah. and be showing it to different people? If you look at any other genre of art, that's pretty crazy. It's like saying, it's like I wrote this book. Now you read my book. Well, it's a, it's now a, it's, you read my book. It's like Madonna releases some album. And that's and it. Every year it's the same album. Or just has one album. Or just, go, yeah, go, yeah. Well, as long as there's new people to hear my album, right. why create anything new? <laughs> right. But some people it becomes First of all, they're not in it for the same reasons maybe you or I in it. They don't look at it as a creative vehicle to express sure. themselves creatively. Sure. Or some people have other outlets. Yeah. Like, this is what I do for my job. Yeah. It's like when we opened up for uh, Dennis Miller, the comedian. Yeah. He had his live set. I'm old enough to know who that is. You also made me remember when he was funny. <laughs> yeah. Because now I don't know what he is. <laughs> but he had, like, his live set. Yeah. And it was very set. Okay. And I thought, he has all these writers. Okay. And here he's still making Tanya Harding references. Okay. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. things that were very old. Yeah. But for him, it was like, this is what I do here. Uh-huh. I don't have any interest in, in doing anything new there. Right. That's my money-making live show. I think the, the danger is, uh, what I see is kind of a danger, is Michael Motion, for example, he kind of, for, for, for many different reasons, took himself out of the community and out of the, 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 the scene, yeah. you could say. I think the danger is that you become irrelevant. Yeah, unfortunately. It's, 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 that people, it's that people, again, with Gatto, they don't understand... What have you done for me lately? <laughs> yeah, but they don't understand where he came from or how great his achievement was and that he didn't go to festivals anymore and then suddenly he comes back and then there isn't really that market anymore in the traditional sense of what he does with the great eight-minute act, right? We, yeah, very the, rare. The review shows are dying or have died or mm. whatever you want to say. So then suddenly you have a whole new generation of, of not only jugglers, but performers who can't even relate to his market and understand right. what an achievement it is that he's done. You, in one way, you become irrelevant. Not, it's, it's, it's weird. I mean, yeah. How do, you keep, how do you keep current and relevant if you, if you came from a different time and how do you evolve? It's stuff I think about a lot and as, I, as I get older. Well, it's important. Did you, did, you ever, did you ever stop juggling? I stopped twice in my life. I don't know if you ever You know, stopped. I've never, I've stopped perhaps, there was a period of time where I stopped the technical part of it. Like I said, maintaining five clubs or okay. seven balls, I got to the point where this was became too much work compared to my creative work. Because it yeah. never was based on, like I say, the technical side of it. I thought it's more important for me to develop what I can do with these base skills 
Like, how do I take something that really I can do time and time again? Yeah. And I never really felt that I was that juggler. I never really felt comfortable doing five clubs or seven balls, even though part of me wanted to compete mm-hmm. with the other jugglers I saw. Did you get back to it or? I tried. Yeah. But then it felt so bad. Mm-hmm. I just felt like, because at my best, I can only do, my best with five clubs was two minutes. Okay. And my best with seven balls was like 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. And so it was always a struggle for me. Hmm. But I always wanted to be considered a great juggler mm-hmm. among my peers. Mm-hmm. And part of me thought, well, the one, reason, one way you're considered a great juggler is that they see you doing these things that are right. at this technical level. Yep. At a certain point I realized, well, if I want to be considered a great juggler, the way I'm going to do it is, is I always said, well, I can't outwork people, I can't outjuggle people. I'm going to try to out-clever people. Sure. And just be like, well, he's damn, he's so clever. But I think, I think it's not even about being clever or good. It's just that juggling is such a young, unexplored, yeah. I'm going to say art form. Mm-hmm. There's just so many things left to do. You don't, Dan, you don't have to do five clubs. You have to it's do, been done. You have to do all the stuff that you're going to do that I'm not. So I don't have to do it. I don't, all right. <laughs> I got my own stuff to do. No, but really, and it's about these new shapes and new props sure. and, and, and new tricks. That's why I'm saying I like this two ball and can, which I have right here in yeah, front of me. Two tennis ball. Because... Yeah. I've never seen anybody do it. So every yeah. move I make, yeah. even though it's inspired by something else. You should do that because somebody needs to do it. Well, they don't but, need to, unfortunately. No, but, but I think I juggling, juggling needs to expand. Sure. If we're talking about expanding it and growing it in, in this conceptual way, I mean, I would much rather see you do that than, than to see well, a video of you doing... Five what, what's, what's the record with five clubs? Like An 45 hour? minutes Yeah, or something? something like that. Yeah. I don't... So let's say you make a video of two, two hours of five clubs. And I, I would say, good job. But then other than that, I don't, I don't get much out of it at this point in juggling's history. Well, I look at it and think, if you were to... Let's say a juggler is listening to this and he wants to juggle. Mm. Your ability to learn to juggle seven, club, uh, seven clubs or mm. seven rings is not a creative feat. Mm. It's merely a technical feat. It, here, you know, that, that reminds me of one thing I, I wanted to ask. So how come, when we talked about uh, plagiarism, mm-hmm. you get this, you get people who, it's not plagiarism, but let's take the WJF, okay. they promote a pretty specific right. genre of juggling. Sports juggling. So you get, you get these younger jugglers who, who, who look at that and go, okay, seven ball pirouette, I'll, I'll do that. Right, and then and then they and then they they put in the time and effort <laughs> to do a seven ball pirouette, which for me, from where I grew up, mm-hmm. is a hard thing to do. I, I've never even yeah. considered it. So. Yeah, right. It, it's 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 a lot of effort. Whereas you take some of these new creative experimental manipulations sure. from Japan or or wherever, and it's with one ring, and you're kind of wafting it around your face, and it would probably you could probably do it in one second. I don't understand sometimes. I'm giving very extreme sure, examples, sure. but I don't understand sometimes why these younger jugglers so are so much more immediately attracted to maybe the sports way, which is a lot of effort and a lot of technique and a lot of suffering, as opposed to the creative artistic way, which is kind of like you could waft some rings around immediately almost. Well, I think it's, it's more linear. I think it's hard yeah. to say... You think you don't have to think. Well, yeah, it's hard with, to with be... The, with the seven balls, pirouette... It's hard, but you don't have to. There's no. There's no activity in your brain in terms of of, of mystery. It's, it's, it's like being funny. It's like someone who says, "Okay, I've learned this incredible juggling ability, mm. but now I realize for me to go on a cruise ship, I have to write comedy." Yeah. And so now you're starting from a blank page of, yeah. "This has to be something I'm creating, or I'm just going to copy these lines." 
but the idea of teaching people how to create and not imitate or not follow a path of like five club back crosses is very linear. Mm. I learned to juggle five clubs. <laughs> I learned the technique of the back cross. They cross, they do double spins. Eventually spins. I yeah. get better at it. I'm able yeah. to now do 50 or 100. Yeah. But you say, create a whole new juggling prop. Yeah. <laughs> and they're just like, I have no idea how that process even goes. It's also quantifiable. You, you do the pirouette, you catch all the seven balls, you've succeeded. Yes. Whereas the other path, does it, how does it end? How do you judge, judge success? Well, how do you even do it? Like when I start, coach yeah. people, to them, like writing a joke is this mystery. Mm-hmm. Like they think, okay, if I were to go to you, okay, think of a joke. Write me a joke right now. Think of something funny. You would yeah. just be like. Where, where, do light bulbs, where do light bulbs come from? How, how do you even start it? Where do light bulbs come from? Where do they where do they come from initially? Yeah, the light bulb factory, right? Right, right, right. So where does a factory come from? The factory factory? <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Was that was that right in the moment? Yeah. Well, well there you go. Okay. No. Okay. I would say it was laugh out loud. Funny, <laughs> I thought you were actually being serious, like because my grandfather. You laughed a little bit. I did. It wasn't even just. It wasn't even. Polite. You were you were rhetor- you were rhetorical. I get it. Yeah, I was. I was taking factory factory. You can have. Okay. You can, okay. Let me write that down. <laughs> it's recorded. But like my because my, my grandfather used to say something similar. But his idea was, like, what was a chair before it was a chair? Okay. It was the idea of a chair. So I always say, like, people ask me, like, what's the most important thing? And we could talk about, well, we covered this, the base of juggling. But if you look at what's the most important thing you can have as a juggler, in my mind, I always come back to ideas. Uh You take an idea, you bring it into reality, it can change the whole course of your career, of your life. Yeah. More so than mastering every technique in the world. Let's go back to this idea of the piano juggling, mm-hmm. Dan Menendez. Up to that point, his career was following a certain path of zucchini festival, comedy club, not really any identifiable, this is the piano juggler. Mm-hmm. If a juggler is listening to this, I think the most important thing you can do is, like the cone, mm-hmm. or the great Kennedy, Kennedy yeah. is have an idea bring it into reality. Mm-hmm. So something that didn't exist before you thought of it now exists. Now you have the power of a god. <laughs> right. Which the power of a god is to create. Right. So use your powers right not to imitate right but to create. I approach juggling as juggling and performing are separate to me. Okay. And I think that's not a very commonly held idea. I'll give an example which is that I see a lot of people teach somebody to juggle three balls for the first time. And then they do a few throws maybe, and the teacher will say, okay, and now smile. And that kind of kills me because sure, the, the, idea, the idea being that, oh, you should smile because this is gonna be a performance eventually. Mm-hmm. And that's just where juggling has come from. I mean, literally that's where it came from, right? Sure. It came from traditional circuses. There were no amateurs. You juggled because you did it as a profession. That evolved through the 50s, 60s, into the 70s with the hobbyist culture, Dave Finnegan making juggle bug props. Mm-hmm. Th- th- that didn't exist, so I get it. I get it that at one point when you learn to juggle, you should smile, <laughs> you should smile. Because that was a consideration you had in your mind that eventually I'm gonna be in front of people, probably on a stage, maybe even making my living doing this. And so th- that little comment of, and now smile, kind of brings up all those questions of where, where this is going. But today, to me, when I grew up, juggling, juggling and performing are separate. You can juggle as a hobby, you can have technique that is outside of any consideration for someone else watching it. And you can do, you can do things that look quote unquote ugly, you can do things that are quote unquote messy, mm-hmm. uh, you can do things that are purely for yourself that maybe nobody else 
will get any enjoyment out of it. It's completely valid. You are a juggler to me. And this idea that juggler, the word juggler also encapsulates this kind of subtitle of performer, I think is also the wrong hierarchy, which I think you would agree with, that you have this idea of performer first. Right. You're a performer, and what do you perform? Well, sometimes I perform with juggling, with comedy, with storytelling, with dance, with music, right? Performer is just a generic term for what we do when we do a show in front of other people. Right. Right? So juggling is just a technique that a performer can use. So I'm really a strong believer that juggling exists outside of performing. And though I will completely agree that juggling and performing definitely have overlapped, especially in the past <laughs> and traditionally where juggling came from, you couldn't separate it from performing because right. it was literally that's where that's the only place it existed. But do you, do you ever think about it in your, in your life, in your work, when you're practicing? Do you ever separate very consciously, okay, now I'm just going to juggle for no, no conscious reason at all in terms of performing? And then do you ever kind of feed back between the performing and then just the pure juggling? Or did you ever think of that? Or? I think, of course, because I have difference between, like, let's say, teaching and, and my juggling. Okay. Like when I teach, I usually say, okay, do you want to be an amateur or do you want to be a professional? Because if you're doing it just for yourself, just for fun, just for an amateur, you can do no wrong. Right. You want to sit there and juggle five balls for an hour. You want to just try something that's way beyond your abilities. You want to just do it. You want to do, you know, I want to learn this trick, chops. You don't really care if it looks good or bad. If that's what you want, there's nothing wrong you can do. You don't have to smile. You don't have to get the full extension on the chops. As long as it feels good to you and you're getting out what you want, which is the enjoyment of juggling, as someone teaching you, I'm not going to try to push you in what I would consider the right way to be a performing juggler. Right. But if you tell me you want to be a performer, then I'm going to, I'm going to approach you differently. I'm going to say, okay, then you should look at what your face is doing. You should mm. look how your posture is. You should look to the side. Because I sometimes look at it like a piano player. You see guys who can juggle. It's the same way they can noodle on the piano. Mm. But now you're saying, okay, now play me a song. I don't know any songs. Right. So to me, when you juggle professionally, it has to go through a progression of, here's my juggling, here are the tricks I know. Mm. Now I need to put them in a linear fashion of, this is the order of the tricks, this is how they go to the music. And you create a thing of someone to say, okay, give me a minute of juggling. Mm -hmm. You have this process, you have this routine that you have ingrained in you through repetition. It mm -hmm. really illustrates the difference between a professional juggler and an amateur juggler. Right. But that being said, there's many times when I juggle personally for my own enjoyment where I'm not always thinking, how will this translate okay. to my work? There's times I just definitely do just juggle purely for the pleasure yeah. of creating something, of the feeling of juggling, of the way it is a meditation to me, it's the way for me to mm. kill time in a positive fashion. Sure, it's still a hobby. It's your work and it's a hobby. To me, it's, it's still... There's still a great interest in mm. what people are doing with it. Mm -hmm. I think my my desire to attend conventions and be part of conventions has diminished. Mm. I got to the place where I always had a role at the conventions. Mm -hmm. I was championships director or I was public show director. Mm -hmm. So I had a job. Yeah. So for me to go to a convention purely as I'm not going to be in the show. Mm. I'm not going to lead workshops. Mm. I'm just going to go to juggle. Yeah. I've lost a bit of that. I think for me, yeah, juggling has 
has all these definitions as layers. I mean, just talking about juggling having conventions, that's even another layer for me. Right. Because I also grew up, I think, as you did the same way, going to IJ and sure. having all these kind of defined roles that you could take on and these members of the community. And there was a defined community and there was even names and faces in those roles that we became familiar with every year. Sure. You know, there's always Martin Frost. And Edward Jackman used to be a name. That yeah. We... Rick Rubenstein's over in the corner with his <laughs> revenge sure. and whatever. Yeah. And it became these characters. But for me, I find so much more, I find it to be so much more productive in the past few years. Maybe this will change. Then to, to concentrate kind of on the juggling that has nothing to do with performing. Because then I can, I've, it's been so much more fruitful to take those kind of purely academic conceptual exercises in terms of explorations of technique and then turn them into performance pieces later on. You never on. know sometimes so, either. So like the, the material I did last night in the show with these rings and tangling up and doing right. the ball juggling, that I never would have thought of that if I just... It just started as an experimentation. Yeah, if, if I would have thought like, okay, now I'm going to make a performance with juggling. I don't think I ever would have gotten well, to Sometimes that. you don't know. Sometimes you start with something. Yeah. And then you realize, oh, that's the solution to this other problem, right? Which I didn't even consider at the time yeah. I came up with it. Yeah. Oh, that technique will fit in well here with this idea. So everything I have, I never purposely say, oh, I'll never perform this, mm -hmm. or this will never be useful. But I don't always go like, oh, this has to have a use for me even to bother working on it. I think that's really important that a lot of people maybe forget, especially if they want to be a performer and be a professional. There is that kind of feeling that everything has to to feed that one goal, and I think for for a time it has to when you start out. Well, if, if you want to be a professional, there are certain things like, well, okay, you need to develop an act, you need to develop a sellable product, a product, yeah, that you can then make money for with. a specific market, yeah. So let's now, now one thing you've done a lot of, which I haven't done as much, and we'll get to our sort of our summing up process is you do a lot of teaching. Is it possible for you to sort of sum up your teaching philosophy like in a couple of sentences? I can do it in one word. Okay, <laughs> perfect. Yeah, the, the whole idea behind my teaching is consciousness. That's it. And consciousness, because it means you're just aware of what you're doing and you're aware what you're doing is on purpose. It's intentional. You're conscious of your choices and there were choices made. I like that, conscious of your choices. Well, because I think a lot of people who were teaching when I was growing up. I never had a teacher. I mean, I grew up in America and we don't have circus no. schools yet as they do in Europe. Mm -hmm. But a lot of teachers in Europe, I would go see or I have friends and they would just teach their routine. They would teach their own style. I took a, I took a class from Victor Key when he stopped Draleon. He did this thing called the art of juggling for one week. And Luke and I, Luke Wilson, mm -hmm. we said, we got to go take this class because here's a performer who has a eight minute act. He's been in the same show for something like 10 years in, in Draleon and Cirque du Soleil. Right. And now he's going to teach a, a week-long course of content, I mean hours a day sure. of content, called The Art of Juggling. This is going to be completely crazy. Because what's he going to say? Like, What does that performer have to say out of that context? Sure. It's really cool. And we got there and the morning before lunch, he taught us his act. He literally put on the music and did the counts to the music and tried to do, get us to do the choreography. And then after lunch, he would look at our quote unquote acts and kind of critique them, which is a normal, I think, sure. theater, theater class exercise. Yeah, yeah. But that was really, the thing was, he was really, that's all he knew. And so many teachers that I experienced when I was developing my teaching, they just taught exactly what they knew. In fact, there's a pretty, I think it's a little bit evil, but there's a pretty standard practice where if you're a juggling company or maybe a dance company or whatever, but let's say I'm a juggling company, I have several members. I'm going to go into a circus school and I'm going to teach one of my routines. Why? 
Because if one of those students is awesome at the routine, I can hire them for for peanuts. Right, 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 right. It's almost like an audition that you're getting paid to give this audition. So people would teach their routines. If I can create a clone of me, then I can use that. For my company. I mean, for example, if if you have somebody who does uh, cigar tricks with hat juggling, right? Awesome stuff. Mm -hmm. I love it. Sure, me too. They go into a school and you have a Diabloist. You have a ball bouncer. You have a devil sticker. Right. And then they teach them hats and cigars. For me personally... I think that's great because for me, if I was a devil sticker, maybe I could use some of those cigar tricks, but I think that's a pretty tough thing for a young student to make that leap. So maybe out of a class of say 20 people, one person is going to love those hat tricks and the other 19 people are going to just suffer. So I was put in these situations a lot growing up when I was teaching, right? Hey, here's an hour long class. I'm giving you money. Here's a ball bouncer, a club juggler, a Diabloist and a poi spinner. And now make some use of that time that's efficient and effective for everybody. So, of course, I could just say, okay, everybody start juggling. Do your favorite trick. I'm going to walk around. Oh, you're working on Mill's Mess. I'll do that. Oh, you're working on the cross battle mm-hmm. with the poi. I didn't find that to be very efficient because I was teaching technique. And technique takes a long time to learn. And when you have an hour-long class, you kind of – you just go, okay, try that seven balls again. Okay, don't drop. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not a good use of my time or gotcha. their time, I think. So – to develop my teaching, I thought, hey, we have to really try to incorporate a lot of different ki- kinds of juggling and different styles. And plus, I didn't want to give my own opinion. I don't want people to juggle like me. Sure. I want them to juggle like them. And it kind of all boiled down to that you're aware of what you're doing, that you made choices, that when I watch you, I say, hey, Dan, when you juggle seven balls, your right shoulder is just, is just hanging up there in the air next to your ear and you're, you're slumped over to your left. Right. Do you know you're standing like that? And you could say to me, yes. I totally know that. In fact, I did it on purpose because my character, I'm in this play and I'm doing the hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> right, right, or exactly. Or you can say, what? I didn't know my shoulder was sticking up there. I said, yeah, well, maybe you want to put this shoulder down or you want to keep it up. It's up to you. Sure, I don't care. As long care. as you're conscious of that choice. I don't care. Yeah, whatever you want to do. So that way, a lot of the teaching I do is just about consciousness saying, look, here's all the options possible. You know what? If your right shoulder is too high, the normal traditional thinking is let's put it down. But another option, just to say, is you could raise your left shoulder up. Sure, sure. They could be even, and then you would have this look, this aesthetic. Yeah, and yeah. Is, and is that an aesthetic you want? And a lot of people will probably say no, but maybe somebody, somebody will say, yes, I want to look like I'm really stressed, or I want to look like I'm very tense because of X, Y, and Z, because they have a reason for their work. They made choices. It's like that Russian juggler who juggles with his arms. Oh, yeah. Straight out to the, the side. Yeah. The sides. Yeah. I don't think anybody approached him and said, well... You know, right. it's really easier if you bring your arm. <laughs> who knows? Who knows how he developed that particular... But again, and, and again, easier is only based upon uh, tradition. Yeah. If you teach somebody to juggle five clubs with single spins and they didn't know any better, then of course sure, single sure. spins is going to be easier than double spins. So I think if you juggle... I always wanted to take a student... I, I don't really teach a lot of technique because we don't have time in school. It's more concepts. Right. But I really wanted to take a student at one point in my life... From, from, from zero, from scratch, and teach them to do, for example, five club back crosses standing on one foot with one eye closed. Just because I think if you learned it that way and you didn't know any better, you could just do it. I'm not saying it's going to be, I mean, is it right. easier or harder? It's hard for me because I didn't learn it like that. But I think if you made some choices, and that's just a random sure, example, sure, sure. but I think you could make some aesthetic choices. That's why I like the juggling in Kiev from uh, Yuri Postnikov. Yeah, yeah. All the Kiev juggling. Because he said it's not enough to juggle seven balls. You have to stand with your feet close together. 
you don't move from the elbow, it's all straight arms, and the pattern is maybe 20 feet high. Right. I'm not saying I like to juggle like that, or that it's easier or harder, but I love it that juggling has come far enough in the history of evolution of juggling that we have an aesthetic now. Yeah. He made a choice. He said juggling should be high and narrow. That's how, to him, juggling looks the best. It's not just that you should catch the seven balls. The seven balls also has to look tall and huge and in his way elegant. Well, I realized that years ago, like I saw like a juggler like Peter Davison. Yeah. Where you go, okay, it's not enough to do the box. Right. It's not enough to do, like, or if you look like Chris Crema, like with the claws. Your whole physicality. But also, there's a way that it looks the best. Yeah. And then, once again, if you're not an amateur, if you're a professional and you want to convey... Right. So some people, they go, I'm learning this pattern, I'm learning this pattern. They never actually perfect any of the patterns. Yeah. Because when you look at someone doing it like the way it's supposed to look, I mean... That on, might, their, on their body. I mean, when Peter yeah. does it, it looks like right for him. You but know? I'm saying, but also this idea of taking even something simple to mm. its furthest conclusion... To every little detail, to your toes. And you go, you go, wow. Yeah. He's doing the same trick I'm doing... Why he looks so much better mm. when he's doing it? Yeah, so it's just consciousness. All right, we're back. We're down to the last two. We've almost all got through all good. of our things. Yeah. So let's go a little start and a little bit lighter. You know, like before, like you and I, I always felt like for some reason we were at odds. That we had a very maybe on the surface. You mean in terms of our work? Just in terms of our aesthetic, but also in terms of our relationship. I always felt oh, like yeah. okay, like you felt like I was this commercial guy, this corporate guy. Let's clear the air on the podcast. Okay. I remember seeing you at Mr. E, right? We met at Mr. Yeah, e. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Stayed, I stayed with you at Jack's I thought I was house. very nice to you. I, I, <laughs> I, no, okay. you were. Oh, okay. I don't know if I was nice to you, but I, I really- I always felt you were, you were a bit standoffish with me. I was a teenager, Dan. But I'd say even, in, even like in our last <laughs> experience with RDL, I thought, why aren't we going out to lunch? Why aren't we actually yeah. becoming friends? Right. Is there some kind of opposition between us? No, I think, I mean, anyway, we had this long discussion now. I think we understand each other yeah, much yeah, better. Yeah, for sure, for sure, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but I think, no, I never had opposition. I always, how to say, well, I looked up to you guys. I went to see the Rispini Brothers a lot when I was a kid. I don't know if you knew that. I, I didn't know that. To, yeah, I came to see your shows. And, did you? I mean, I remember you at Mr. E. Did you do, was that 94, I think? I think 94. Like, I don't know. Did you do the flipping dog on the platform? Probably. That, 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 goes, that's, that goes pretty far back. That's genius. That's like one of my favorite bits ever. Well, like recently I put out a... Um, like a promotional video uh -huh. and you wrote me an email yeah. saying, wow, I really like what you're doing. I like that you're creating new stuff or yeah, whatever yeah. it was. And I thought, that's the first time I thought that you liked my material. Oh, I always liked your oh, material. Okay. Well, there you I go. mean, if you thought I was a punk in 94, I was a teenager. I mean, no, no, no. I, yeah, I thought I was, you were... I wasn't I talking you were, to anybody. No, but I thought <laughs> at that point you were in the midst of, of discovering who you were. You were sort yeah. of a guy searching for an identity. Sure. I just felt like like more in our recent counters. Yeah. Like, I remember doing the RDL thing where it was like, I came to you, I said, can we put something on that? Even yeah. I made a joke about when we met this time yeah, at Moisture yeah. Fest. I said, can we put a, uh, a drape over that piano bench so it yeah. look nicer? And you were like, why can't it just be a piano bench? Yeah, but and I there mean... Was like a, there was like kind of a... My aesthetic and your aesthetic kind of bumped heads a bit. And I think they probably do, I mean, still in terms of like how we approach... Sure. If, if we would approach like... A, let's say we would make an act together. Yes. I'm sure we'd have more of those discussions about... Yeah, about but I think... But you know what's funny? I think we could do it. Now having yeah, talked yeah. to you and, yeah, and, sure. and getting a little closer, sure. I think actually it would be interesting and actually even fun. Sure, sure. Where before I would have been like, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. 
Yeah, I mean, I just had a, I had a really, I don't say different way to grow up with juggling, mm-hmm. but I started off doing unicycling. Right, right. And from the beginning of unicycling, unicycling was all about competition. Also, it was almost like ice skating. You had your little routine with the unicycling and you had races. You would race around a track right. for time and you would do these competitions where you would have your skill sets. Like in the ice skating, you have to do your triple axel. You sure. have your list of tricks. And you kind of have to execute them in an artistic way. Usually it would be the Disney movie that came out that year. You'd use the, the theme music. Okay. You know, one year everybody used Little Mermaid or whatever yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. You know, like the IJA. We used to have Indiana Jones. And Axel, the uh, Axel F. Axel F. from uh, yeah. like, Hills Cop. Whatever movie came out that sure. year, you'd have that, that kind yeah. of thing. I always, well, I, again, I maybe told this to Marcus, but when I was growing up, I was doing, uh, I, juggled, I juggled plungers and knives and I ate the apples right, and right. I told I told a lot of jokes that I ripped off. I only made one joke of my own, I think when I was 13 and I, I would come out on stage and say, hi, my name is Jay. I'm the 10th of 26 children. And yeah, silence. Okay. And yeah, yeah, see? I get it though, yeah. Okay. An alphabet joke. Yeah, you know. Okay. Uh, okay. I like it. <laughs> And so I was doing that kind of thing. And then when I was 18, I kind of saw dance for the first time. And I thought, well, dance is stupid because right. they're not doing any tricks. Sure, sure. But I kind of looked around and said, well, there's theaters built for dance and people are getting paid to do dance. What, what's, what's up with dance? And I saw that it was about aesthetics and it was about expression and right, whatever. Right. And I kind of always had this feeling with juggling that I didn't really care if I was better than you. I don't care. I don't. Yeah, I'm not that, a big That's computer. not why I want to go on stage and say, look how good I am. Right, right. I want to go on stage for some other reason. I mean, I really love how juggling looks, the shapes, and how sure. it changes. And I love how it feels sometimes. I remember seeing there was was it Fred Garbo in that old juggling documentary by Strider Productions. Sure, yeah. Or somebody was he dating yourself because that's a good thirty some sure. years ago. And someone had said in the documentary, "I like juggling also because it stops when I stop." And I never thought about that before. That's interesting. That's so powerful that here's something that only exists because I make it happen. Which I always thought was a bad thing. You know, when you, right, go, right. when you go see a music concert, that artist can have a CD or a record I see. to sell. It only exists in that moment. Jonathan. Yeah. And then I always thought that was a bad thing. I was like, well, as a juggler, I, I could really be cashing in if, if, I, right, 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 if right. I could sell my album or my whatever. Whereas this person in that documentary, I think it was Fred Garbo, said that was a virtue. That was something I really uh, liked about juggling is that it was so... Uh, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Ephemeral. Yeah, ephemeral. That always stuck with me too. So I always thought there was something about juggling more than the skill or impressing people. It was a long journey to get there because I grew up in such... I grew up in Ohio. Right. The market in Ohio was definitely comedy juggling shows. So I was always not really fitting in and I couldn't express myself. I couldn't articulate it. Right. So there was something inside of me waiting to get out. And for sure you met me. I mean, in the mid-90s, that's when I was going through all that stuff. And finally, when I went to Europe and I had to, I spent about 10 years in Europe trying to understand what it was, what they were juggling over there. It's been a long journey, but definitely I always felt there was something inside of me that was beyond the skill of why, why go on stage? And I still think of that today. I think to myself, tonight, we're going to do two shows tonight. Yeah. I think, why should people watch me? I don't take it for granted that just because I can do a skill, just because I can juggle seven balls, that's not enough mm-hmm. for why you should watch me or why I should show you seven balls. It's definitely enough for some people. It's definitely enough for some people in some markets. But for example, I always think of shows and, and performances as, as having two sides to them. There's the business and there's the art. Okay. And in the perfect world, both sides, the business and the art, are something that are interesting to me. But I'll do a show if only one is interesting to me. So. I, I remember when the euro came out in, in Europe before they had the unified currency. Okay. They were launching the euro sure. when I was living in London. I was hired to be a Frenchman wearing a beret with a pencil mustache juggling baguettes. And you know what? I got paid a lot of money. 
Artistically, I had absolutely no interest in that. Financially, it paid my rent for a few months and I was so happy to do it. I, I have nothing against doing quote unquote commercial work or certain styles. I don't care if there's something interesting about it. Sure. I'll do it. So for example, what I think happened to me, especially when I was a teenager growing up through my 20s at least, I would get invited to go to a juggling festival and do something in the public show. And then I would say, well, there's these two sides. There's art and there's business. So how's the business looking? Well, there's no money and there's no real prestige or it's not going to be a stepping stone. I mean, the only thing I'll get out of doing this juggling festival show is another juggling festival show. <laughs> right. Or a chance to be in front of a certain audience. Yeah. And usually that audience is a bunch of hobbyists. Right. Jugglers. They're not bookers. They're not producers. Right, 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 right. right? Business-wise, it makes no sense. Exactly. So then I say, artistically, why am I here? And I think the expectation is, well, we're going to hire this juggler who's going to come in and do this show and they're going to do their act. But you know what? For me to juggle seven balls on your stage, I actually have to kind of maybe warm up and <laughs> I have to put some effort in. I have to take I have to take time out of my regular life, which is to be a professional right. performer. I have to take office hours away. I have to take training hours away to devote to that experience. So a lot of the times I would say, look, the only value I'm going to get out of this in terms of my career, I don't mean personally, sure. right? I'm talking professionally, is let me go try this new idea. And if, if that idea succeeds or half succeeds, I can reflect on it and maybe I can develop a new thing for my show, which will be even more marketable and profitable in the future. So I could justify taking the time to go to that festival to do that to do that show by saying, well, look, I'm investing into my business. I'm investing artistically into my career. And I think then for many years, nobody ever saw, I mean, especially in America, when I moved to Europe and I would come back to America, I would do some small festival shows here and there. Nobody would ever see my product. Nobody would see my professional product that right. I would actually sell. Interesting. Because why? Because uh, they couldn't afford it, and I and I couldn't afford to give it to them for free. And it was much more valuable for me to come out. Like last night, I'm here at Moisture Festival. It's not the highest paying contract I've had in terms of money. Sure. But maybe in terms of experience, in terms of meeting people, talking to you, doing this podcast, meeting the community, I get so much inspiration out of it and energy. I think that's why they get people to come is, is the community. But also then last night in the show, I didn't do my eight minute act right. that you're going to pay me 5,000 bucks to do. Right. I did a couple of new things I'm working on. It went okay. Got the response? It wasn't the best thing I've ever done. It didn't, I don't think I bombed. No, I no. learned a lot. Yeah. I learned so much last night. And I'm going to learn a lot tonight. And you know what? I'm going to come home from this Moisture Festival gig and I'm going to say to myself, wow, okay, what happened? Let's do that. Let's, let's go down the list mentally and edit everything I did. This worked. Oh, I could, do, I could improve it by doing this. Oh, I talked to Sam Williams of the Flying Caramaza Brothers. He gave me some ideas last night. He's cool. How invaluable is that? <laughs> you know, you can't buy I that. Like Sam, you, yeah. can't, you can't spend money for that. So what I get out of this experience uh, will drive my business, will move me forward as a professional. At the same time, for sure, some people are going to walk away from last night going, oh, I saw Jay's act. I got you. Right? So Jay does that thing with the rings and then he makes the music. That's his thing. It's like, well, yeah, that's one thing I tried. Maybe in the future, it could be my main thing that I'm going to really just, that's all I do. But kind of the whole process of that journey... Yeah. It depends on your venue, the context, especially in the hobby juggling scene with juggling festivals. I never really was just like, well, here's my act. Well, one reason I always like to bring you or Team RDL or Peapots, whatever, to the shows I produced, even though it wasn't quite my aesthetic, was because I'm interested to see what they're going to do. Right. When I hire a Victor Key or I hire a Chris Cremo, I go, what's going to be the difference between me doing that and watching their video? 
Right. They're going to do what I know they're going to do, which sometimes is important. Yes. You want that product. For sure. But I always like, and let's say you do something. Let's say the Peapod comes and they're like, oh, we didn't like them or they did this. To me, that's interesting at least. There was an experience. You were, expect, well, you were expecting something or it didn't fulfill it and we're talking about it. And uh, it was, for me, there was a bit of the unknown. So uh, I always like that. Maybe we can sum up with this. I, I'm, I'm really good friends with John Held from Air Jazz. Sure. You know, Air Jazz, Kaziah, Peter, and John. I remember talking to John one time, and John said, you know what? Everybody likes the club passing act. The club passing act we do, the trio, everybody says, you know what, guys? That's a, that's a great piece. Really good. Really Wonderful good. Piece. Really good. Love that piece. Yeah. Really good. But the long metal pole piece that they do yeah, pull uh, to, people. to pull people to uh, Electric Counterpoint by Steve Reich, they say, John said, you know what? When we do that piece, people sometimes people cry and sometimes people scream and leave because they hate it. Mm. So he said, I would much rather do the pole piece where it touches one person so deeply that they cry. And then sure, maybe there's some other people who just can't stand the piece and don't like it, but I would much rather have a piece of work that affects some people deeply rather than the club passing piece, which is nice and everybody likes it, yeah. but nobody comes away from the club passing piece weeping because they've so overcome with emotion of the performance. So that always stuck with me. He told me that when I was maybe 18 years old. And I always remembered that and thought, you know what, I can, I can relate to that. And I, I love that idea of doing something that maybe not every single person in the world loves on an, on an average level. Right, right, right. But you do something that some people are really passionate about. Interesting. Even if it's a small number of people, I'd rather touch them deeply. So now, some people might think of like Jake Gilligan as sort of a serious juggler, <laughs> uh, an artistic juggler. Sure. So give us one thing, like maybe they'd be surprised I like this, or, okay. or, or they'd be surprised that about this about myself. So we'll end on a light note, and I think also that you and I can end on a note of friendship and mutual respect. <laughs> I'm going to invite you into my podcast. Oh, you have a podcast? Not yet, but oh, okay. I, when I go, when for sure. I, and I then, then you, I'll tell you my favorite performing story, and <laughs> yeah. you can tell me yours. Okay. All right, so give us one thing to, to, to end that you want people to, to know about you or to... <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, I've done comedy shows before. I mean, recently I did... Uh, uh, oh, well, last year I booked a show in Pittsburgh... Okay. At a, at a small theater. I knew it was a comedy club type of thing, but it's not like I was on, on an evening with a bunch of comics. I right. had my own evening. Gotcha. I was going to do my own show. I have like an hour long show, mm -hmm. I do. Um, and I thought I was just going to do my show. About two weeks before the gig, the owner of the theater calls me and he said, hey, hey, I'm just checking. You know this is a comedy. You're doing a comedy show, right? And I said, yeah. yeah sure, sure. Okay. <laughs> There'll course, be some laughs in there. Of course I'm doing a comedy show. That, why would I not do that? That's what we booked. And I, had no, I thought I was doing my normal show. Right. I knew it was a comedy theater, but that had somehow the communication. It was booked through a third party. And right, 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 right. Communication got crossed. Yeah, yeah. So two weeks before the gig, it was too late to cancel. I mean, well, what could I do? I could say on the phone to him, I could say, like, no, I wasn't planning that. I said, well, you just say yes and. Sure. <laughs> so I said, yes, and it's going to be great. So in two weeks, <laughs> right, right, right. I kind of I, I, I kind of looked back on my entire life and I took every single audience volunteer bit I'd ever made. And maybe I'm going to do a couple of them tonight. We'll see. Cool. But I did a whole show of audience volunteers, maybe about 15 bits or something. And it was a comedy show. And I have to say, I'm not, okay, I didn't see it. I was on stage. <laughs> right, right. But I got a standing ovation. So I was pretty proud that I could get through a comedy show. I think it's the only time I'm ever going to do it. 
But uh, I was kind of happy. I was kind of proud that I could pull it off and do a comedy show in a comedy venue and people stood up at the end in honest, genuine happiness. Right, 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 right. I was, to be honest, I was really relieved at the end that I got so, through So basically, it. if you're booking a comedy show <laughs> and you're looking for Mr. Comedy... Uh, <laughs> make sure I'm confused. Yeah, exactly. When I sign the contract and then call me a week before. But... <laughs> He can do it. I can do it. Hey, Jay, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Hopefully we can yeah, man. use uh, as Edit much. Edit it down. Well, I don't know. I, mean, I, I thought it was all very interesting cool. myself. I had, so. I had a lot of fun, man. Cool. Boom. That was Jay Gilgan dropping some juggling knowledge on you on the Drop Everything podcast number 15. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed talking with Jay. Remember, our sponsor, as always, is the International Jugglers Association. Join the IJA Join a group that both Jay and I have had a long history with, a group of some of the greatest jugglers in the world, the International Jugglers Association. Thanks to my engineer, Karen Holzman. Thanks to all the people listening. Stick around and you'll hear the sound of silence. <laughs>